Welcome to Moments of Leadership. Today, my guest is Sergeant Major Donald Reynolds. He's former 0331 machine gunner, 0369 infantry unit leader, and obviously an 8999 to those listeners in the know as a Sergeant Major. Uh, many know him on Instagram as Norseman underscore nine, where he posts some of the best and most encouraging insights on both training and combat leadership that I've been reading and has really set the standard for using social media as a leadership tool. He's from Pennsylvania, and he enlisted in the Marine Corps in July of 2000 and graduated from Marine Corps Recruit Depot Paris Island in October of 2000. In December of 2000, then-Private Reynolds reported to Lima 3-2 and completed two combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. In January of 2005, then-Sergeant Reynolds checked into Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, for the battalion's deployment to Fallujah, Iraq. February of 2008, still then Sergeant Reynolds received orders to go to Bravo Company 1-4, where he completed another deployment to Fallujah. And then April of 2012, he was meritoriously promoted to the rank of gunnery sergeant and received orders to 2nd Battalion 4th Marines and completed a combat deployment to Afghanistan as a team chief for an Afghan border police advisory team and then did a 31st Mew deployment as the company gunnery sergeant for Fox Company. And then during his time with 2-4, he was the recipient of both the Sergeant Major Joseph Ellis Leadership Award and the Three MEF Commanding Generals Leadership Award. Selected for promotion in December of 2015, Gunnery Sergeant Reynolds was frocked to the rank of First Sergeant and assigned to India Company 3-7, RAH, where he completed a special purpose MAGTAF deployment to the CENTCOM region as the Crisis Response Company's First Sergeant. Then October of 2017, First Sergeant Reynolds served as the first sergeant for two companies at Marine Corps Communications and Electronics School. And then in 2019, First Sergeant Reynolds received orders to the School of Infantry West, where he served as the company first sergeant for Infantry Unit Leaders Training Company, and then as the director of Marine Combat Instructor School. Finally selected for promotion to Sergeant Major in November of 2020. He was frocked to his present rank in January of 2021 and was assigned as the Sergeant Major for recruiting station Twin Cities in February of 2021. Sergeant Major Reynolds' personal awards include the Meritorious Service Medal, Navy Commendation Medal with three gold stars, Navy Achievement Medal with one silver star, one combat and one Combat V Distinguishing Device, and of course, the Combat Action Ribbon. Sergeant Major Reynolds is married to the former Daniel Pencock and the proud parents of two children, Ella and Leo. Sergeant Major Reynolds, welcome to Moments of Leadership. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. It's, uh, you know, this is really the first time we've spoken face-to-face, I guess, through video. So you and I got to know each other on, on Instagram, and I just immediately fell in love with everything that you were, you were writing and posting on there. I just thought it was fantastic. And, you know, I'll just start off with the first question, you know, we all start out in the military as either an E1 or an O1, and or I'm kind of making this up, but really only 1% of us ever make it to that senior enlisted rank, the 30, the 25, 30, 40 year mark. Tell me some of the stories that you remember about the NCOs that you had when you checked into Lima Company 3-2 as a young 0331 that were impactful when you deployed to combat for the first time. Like, were there any crystallizing moments, any of those aha moments that just stayed with you forever? There's plenty. Um, so to start off with, uh, I did not have the very, the, the best uh, first experience in, as a Marine. And it kind of, 
I was a, uh, my high school senior year, um, I had spent uh, the summer before that in a juvenile detention center. I got in a lot of trouble. So when the Marine Corps recruiter saw me walking through the high school um, at the beginning of the, of the year, I, I mean, I looked like a punk. Uh, if you can imagine the late 90s, baggy pants, you know. So he walked up to me and I guess he could just tell by looking at me. He said, uh, what do you what do you plan to do when you graduate? And he handed me the Marine recruiter card. And I said, you know, I looked at it, I laughed and I flicked it back at him. And I said, no, thanks. I grew up in a, in a house with extreme discipline. My father was, it was a disciplinarian. So like I had always, and he was, my, my dad was a biker. So he was a, a big man. So my idea of discipline was always, the first thing was an impressive physical presence. So when I joined the Marines, I went UA my first uh, Liberty weekend and I got NJP'd and I, really didn't have a good understanding of, you know, what I was a part of. And, and we got a brand new set of staff NCOs in my first battalion, third battalion, second Marines, and they were exactly what I needed. So they were classic example of a military professional. So back then combat action ribbons were extremely hard to come by. So a lot of, you'd see these staff NCOs that had a combat action ribbon, they were automatically revered. They were almost like unicorns when you would see them. So that meant that they had done a desert storm deployment. A lot of these guys were Somali veterans. So they all had these combat action ribbons. And then on top of that is that they were all former drill instructors. And on top of being former drill instructors, they were also had served in reconnaissance battalions or were in scout sniper platoons. So at that time during peacetime Marine Corps, it was uh, indicative of a, of a guy that routinely sought out difficult assignments. So what I learned from them is that you don't get to pick where you invest your efforts or what orders you get to choose to follow. You apply yourself in all areas from the way, from the way these guys wear their uniforms, the cleanliness of, you know, how they demanded how we kept, kept our rooms, the maintenance of our weapons and our gear, all the way down to how to prepare a squad for patrol. They were just as, as comfortable teaching a class on close order drill as they were teaching a class on ambushes. These guys were truly experts in every um, aspect of the military. Um, and today you kind of have like a counterculture that pushes back against the organizational discipline, like shaves, haircuts, uniforms, and all that attention to detail stuff. A lot of Marines have a problem with it or say this won't impact me in combat. A lot of younger Marines throw out examples of a guy who prioritizes things solely like drill and ceremonies, uniforms, or like a military protocol and doesn't know anything about his own MOS field. These guys taught me to be proficient in all things, or at least strive to be proficient in all things. So they were incredibly disciplined, physically fit, tactically and technically proficient. And you showed up to work every day looking like a million bucks. To this day, those guys, that first crop of uh, staff NCOs and NCOs that I worked with in Lima 3 2 are, are, are kind of how I measure myself now, even as a sergeant major. I, I envision, I think of at times before I'm about to do or not do something what these guys would say to me. They were incredibly demanding and they were intense without being brutal or sadistic. They just had a bubble of correctness around them. You either fixed yourself or you got crushed. And they were able to tie organizational discipline and the tactical relevance for me. Um, they were like the classic examples of, of tough love, which uh, I think a lot of Marines appreciate and actually seek out when it comes from the right person. Case in point, we had, uh, I was a machine gun section leader in the invasion. And if you've ever seen a rifle company dug in in the middle of the desert where there's nothing, um, it covers quite a large portion of terrain, right? So I would walk the lines at night with my lieutenant and check on the machine gunners. And our gun that was assigned the uh, PDF in the defense was right in front of second platoon's position. And the second platoon sergeant was a stickler for tactical protocol, right? So he 
he would see me in the hole hit the machine gun hole was directly in front of his hole. So he'd see me creep up at like 2am. I jump in the hole. I'd be checking range cards with my guys. And I had my own little 119. And he'd call over the radio and he'd say, you know, like, Hey, my call sign was hammer guns. And he'd say, hammer guns. Did you request permission to enter my portion of the lines? And you would say, I'm already <laughs> behind the line staff sergeant. And he'd say, uh, <laughs> he'd say, get out, go back and try it again. So he'd be like, ah, and you would, you know, jump out of the hole. You'd walk back, you know, to first platoon sector of the lines. You'd call in and say, you know, hammer two, this is hammer guns, request permission to enter your portion of the line. They say, Hey, come on in Reynolds, you know, and then you'd walk in and you would go do I, but you know, that kind of stuff, that guy paid a lot of attention to me and kind of messed with me because he really liked me. And those guys were so intense, so demanding that that sort of attention I was I was perfectly okay with because uh, it was like they see me, you know what I mean? They're talking to me um, and they're always trying to make me better. So that's like my pre-war guys, the guys that kind of showed me before war, you know, the things when, when we were running around, kind of just training in the field, still back of pressing our uniforms, shining your boots and stuff like that. Those were the guys that really impressed me. And as I became a small unit leader, I had people like Sergeant Major Brian Zikafus, who just recently retired. He was my company first sergeant. He was the heart and soul of our company. So when I came back in the Marine Corps, I got out and came back in. He was our company first sergeant. He was a former scout sniper from Desert Storm, Silver Star recipient. He was a hero to the Marines. And he was that first guy who was, um, he looked like he was more comfortable in the field getting dirty with the Marines than he was sitting in an office somewhere. There was no doubt that he was the senior Marine in the company. He wasn't just a fit rep and NJP guy. He was the guy responsible for the discipline, cohesion, and performance of the team. When we got to Fallujah, he had a rule. And the rule was he would, he would observe every squad leader's prep for combat phase before they went out on patrol. So the way the company operated then was you'd have like three or four squads, eight to 12 men out patrolling at any hour of the day, all day. So you have guys that are, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22 out leading these patrols. And they're the only ones out side friendly line. So his thing was he would observe and watch you get ready to go. Didn't matter what time of day you were allowed to walk into his hooch and shake him awake and say, first sergeant, I'm about ready to give my order. He would come out. He would take notes. He would watch you give the order. He'd watch you inspect your Marines. He'd watch you do your mission card. He'd watch you uh, issue out pyro. He'd watch you do your rehearsals. And then you would depart friendly lines. And a um, Kind of like a, a stamp of approval would be if you went into his hooch the second time you went out and said, first sergeant, about ready to give my order. He would say, hey, you're good. That meant he saw, he, he, he was comfortable and he was confident in your abilities to get ready to go out. He would also go on patrol with us. And when he would go on patrol with us, he filled a role just like another rifleman. So you'd had a guy that had been in the Marine Corps since the late 80s, scout sniper, scout sniper instructor. And he would come out on patrol and you could look at him and say, hey, first sergeant, I need you to pick up this sector of fire or, hey, first sergeant, I need you to go pick up a security position, you know, over there on the corner. And he would do it. He could have very easily came out and kind of took over the patrol or created a whole bunch of confusion by being out there or making the squad leader nervous because, you know, the first sergeant's now there. And I realized that he taught me that type of leadership showing that you're willing to go out and get your hands dirty with the Marines, uh, share the risk with your Marines. No one's above that, no matter what their station is in life. And the fact that he could have gone out and never done that, but he subordinated himself. That's the right word. He, he, he subordinated himself to um, kind of pick the Marines up, right? The Marine, you know, the Marine obviously feels good because he's out there and his first sergeant's like, you know, responding to his orders because he's the squad leader. Made, made that billet, made that Marine feel important um, and the Marines loved him for it. And then the last would be, and I think this ties into the later on question, is Sergeant Major Jeff Dagenhart, who was a super squad winner of both coasts. He got injured in Iraq and he rehabilitated his, his, uh, his hip and he came back to the company and uh, he took over as our company gunnery sergeant. So he had convinced the monitor that he was good to go. 
If you looked up Marine Gunnery Sergeant in the dictionary, it would be this guy. He was the, the classic example. I'll never forget on a on a very long battalion hike. He took a liking to me. He called me to the rear of the, the formation. He's like, hey, come back here. So I did. And I'm like, what's going on, Gunny? He's like, I'm dying right now. It was like a long hike. We're coming up River Road in Camp Lejeune. We're coming close to six Marines. And he's like, I, I thought he just wanted to talk to me. He's like, I'm having a really hard time right now. And he's gritting his teeth. And he's like, motivate me. So I was, you know, so I was like, let's go, Gunny. You know, and he's like, I'm, yeah. you know. There was a Marine that had fallen out right as we were about to break right at the 6th Marine Regimental Headquarters and head back into the battalion area. Our battalion sergeant major told him, like, hey, you know, I'm not going to take you on deployment if you can't, you know, you can't do your job with the company. Right. So that's what um, the gunny was kind of sweating. So he sees this kid laying there. and He's like, help me pick this kid up. and put me So we picked this kid up, this this kid that's prostrate. He fell out. You know, he's, we throw him on the gunny's uh, pack. And the gun and my gun, he's like, comes walking up the whole battalion. We went straight into formation. So they come in from the hike and we go straight into a battalion formation. The battalion sergeant major standing out front. And my gun, he comes walking up to the front of the formation in front of all the Marines with this like hike drop. And he drops them at the sergeant major's feet. So like, you know, and he's like, look, and the sergeant major's like, I told you I'd be good. I told you I could deploy, you know, and he walks back. He was a guy that just, he, so everybody taught me kind of, um, you know, at the beginning, I learned attention to detail and that military professional, the, the type of things that you think about when you think Marine. And then, you know, from from guys like Zikafus, I learned how that kind of ties into, you know, being hum- humble and, you know, humility and being confident in yourself and just being there for sharing the risk. And then from Dagenhart, I learned he was just so organized. He was he was tactically and technically proficient. So all that stuff that Dagenhart helped me kind of zero my scope in on how to be a proficient infantry unit leader and tie all those things together. That guy is probably, you know, the most influential Marine I've ever served with. So that's awesome. Yeah. I want to rewind a little bit because you you hit real quick that you had gotten in trouble on your very first Liberty weekend. Oh yeah. Was that after you checked in the three, two or it was, so there's a, okay. so, yeah. So it was after I checked in the three, two. So there was, I really didn't put much thought in joining the Marines. Uh, the Marines were, you know, it was before, you know, it was 2000, but it's before smartphones, before all this stuff. Right. So like I said, I grew up really, really disciplined. My father was a disciplinarian. He was also a biker. Right. So imagine he looked like a combination of uh, Hulk Hogan and dog, the bounty hunter. Okay. Like long blonde hair <laughs> yeah. guy, you know? So I rebelled. That's a tough entrance into an infantry company, right? You show oh, up. It, it sure is. It sure is. So what, you're you. I guess my point is I graduated from boot camp and boot camp kind of washed over me. Right. So, cause I had, I was used to discipline and I wasn't really, I couldn't tie it together. Right. So I thought that I had made the biggest mistake of my life joining the Marines. I was one of those guys that if you saw me on Liberty and you know, my, the whole point was to not look like a Marine. Right. So I, I thought that that would be cool as if someone would look at me and say like, you know, not be able to tie military service and me together as, you know, as a brand new Marine. Right. I, I was one of those guys had a girlfriend at the time and uh, our first Liberty weekend, the first 96, you know, she convinced me to stay uh, when I should have met my ride back to Camp Lejeune. Right. So I stayed and I, you know, partied and I did whatever. And I woke up the next morning and I figured I might as well turn this into a couple more days. Right. So my company first sergeant called my home and my father answered the phone and my father was livid. He's like, get out. You know, like, you know, my dad thought at the time that the, <laughs> right. that the Marine Corps was going to send a hit team to the house, you know, <laughs> and yeah. kick in the back door and drag me out, you know. So uh, I went back and it was really, really tough. And I was NJP'd and, you know. So busted or just, did, I, I, did was, oh, I was, yes. Oh, I got busted. My first sergeant met me at the Camp Lejeune, at the, the Jacksonville bus, the Greyhound bus station with, with two NCOs. And I mean, the second oh, I came wow. off that bus, they were all over me. All okay. Over so me. that, that back down to E1 then? 
I, so I never even made it past E1. I mean, literally, this was my <laughs> first 96 as a private okay. check in from SOI. Right. Wow. Okay. So yes. nowhere, nowhere lower to go. No, but, coming in with a bang too. Yeah. So, so that's really what I, that's the heart of, of the story I want to get to. So you, you, you check into an infantry company, right? And, and you get in trouble. And this is, this is pre-invasion, right? This, so you, oh, this is, this combat is, was not on the horizon. No. Pre-9-11. January, January, 2001. Okay. So, so I'm curious, I want to hear how you remember as a E1, right? In trouble. How did the NCOs lead you out of that mistake? Were they supportive? Did you feel like, hey, these guys are, you know, going to give me a second chance? Like what what was your mental state because I I think a lot of people who listen to this can probably relate to having gotten trouble at some point in their career as a, as a matter of fact, every single guest that's ever been on this on this podcast has told some story about how they got in trouble and they've ended up becoming, you know, very successful career service members. So there must have been some sort of encouragement. Some NCO must have said like, hey, listen, here's the path forward. T- tell, me, tell me if that happened to you. Well, so what happened with me was a lot of times when a Marine screws something up, there's a mitigating factor. So you'll have a guy that messes something up and you can actually like look at his record or look at what he's done and said like, you know, well, he's done really great. Other times he just made a mistake, right? For me, I was so new that there was no mitigating circumstances, right? So essentially I was uh, awash. I was a punk private that checked in from SOI, had done nothing in the fleet and already got in trouble, right? So I remember conducting my CCU, for those that remember that correctional custodies unit was still a thing. Uh, And uh, and I was kind of like a, like a, like a punk. And I remember I got brought in for NJP and my company commander was uh, my, my first sergeant standing there. It's in the old Camp Lejeune offices. So the offices were very, very small and I'm standing in my company commander's office and they're given, you know, we're going through NJP and I I had no idea what was really going on. It just stood there. And I think my body language, the way my bearing was so disgusting but once he mentioned CCU and I had no idea what CCU was, my first sergeant started laughing. It was like, oh, you think you know it all now, don't you? He's like, CCU, that's for, you know, so I was deathly afraid of CCU. My company commander said, you know what? You are so new. You don't know anything. He's like, I, you are, you are, you are the most disgusting example of a Marine that I've got, I've received yet. He's like, but I don't even think you know what you're doing right now. You know, so they, so they gave me 14 and 14, but what really I was pulled out of my platoon. So, because I hadn't even done anything yet to get assigned to a platoon. Right. So I did EPD, so cleanup, and then I would report to the battalion police sergeant's office during the day. So all I was, was the guy that picked up cigarette butts and did work and parties around the battalion. And I was initially fine with that. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you. I was, I was fine with that. The NCO, because I didn't, I kind of hoped that they would kick me out of the Marine Corps. The NCOs didn't really give me the time of day except for one or two. Right. And they happened to be from my home of record. So there was some common ground. We were all from Pennsylvania around the Philadelphia area. And they would, they didn't convince me to, to change my act. They were just nice to me. I mean, at that time, when you're during that era as a young Marine, you just spent your whole day in a daze of saying, yes, Lance Corporal, no, Lance Corporal, and standing up for rest. We really didn't know what was going on. Those guys kind of treated me, treated me decently. So much time went by. I said to myself, I'm either going to, you know, honor my commitment because I'm sick of picking up cigarette butts. I'm sick of be- getting put on working parties. I'm not going to get kicked out of the Marine Corps. I might as well just make this make this work. Um, and it was really, really hard. But, you know, the best thing that happened to me was we got a nasty corporal that checked in. 
right? And this guy was just, yeah, he was, he just was petty and harassed. He, he's the type of guy, he would see me on a Tuesday and say, hey, Reynolds, field day is Thursday, right? He said, yes. And he goes, you'd fail. So he'd fail you on a Tuesday for a field day that didn't even happen yet. He'd say, I'll be by your room at zero two or something like that. I figured this out. The quickest way to get revenge to, on people that, you know, kind of cast our judgment on you or say that you're worthless, right, is to outwork them. So I got so sick of hearing the trash talk, you know, or kind of being, you know, like my, 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 my nickname was like, hey, you a piece of shit, right? So they'd be like, hey, you a piece of shit, come over here, right? I got so sick of that, that uh, I put my head down and I thought the only way that you can get revenge on a guy that's calling you like, hey, come here, you a piece of shit, is to step over him while you're hiking the 240 and he's falling out and he's lying prostrate on the ground on a, on a battalion hike. The only way to get revenge on some, and say, ooh, route corporal, as you're stepping over him, right? Or the only way you can get revenge is by having the quickest gun drill, by being the most physically fit. So really what happened was, is that, you know, those two guys from my home of record, the senior Marines that were nice to me, kind of like gave me a safe space to go to at night. You know, I could kind of sit in there and talk to them about like stuff outside the Marine Corps. But primarily this one rotten corporal, my section leader, was the one that I just put my head down. I was PTing after work. I was reading pubs. I was doing all sorts of things. And by the time midway through our uh, my first deployment to Okinawa, I was recommended for meritorious corporal. Nice. And I got it. And I got it. So, you know, so now I'm the same rank as this guy that was once tormenting me. And it was great because, you know, the command wrote a letter to my father. My platoon commander wrote a letter to my father saying like, you know, I know your son started off like on the worst possible circumstances, but I want to let you know what your son's up to now. I made my family proud. And, you know, once I gave the Marine Corps a chance and stopped trying to worry about what was going on at home or my girlfriends or what my buddies were doing, I, I, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. I love the story about how the platoon commander wrote your, your folks a letter. I don't know if that's common, commonplace these days. I did it once on a deployment, wrote wrote every parent a letter just I was on ship and had plenty of time to do it. You know, I, I don't know, again, I don't know if that's commonplace, Boy, I'll tell you, I, I will encourage people who are listening to seriously consider that whether you're an officer enlisted, if you've got men or women underneath you and you're in charge of them writing their folks a letter, just saying that they're doing a great job, just unbelievable for the folks and, you know, great, great PR for the Marine Corps as well. But I, I, I oh. won't digress much more than that, but I'll, I think it's great. I think so too. Okay, so meritorious corporal, yes. right? That's that's an achievement in the infantry community. I thought so, and it was back in the day yeah. where it was. Uh, we would do like the O course. We do a PFT. There was a knowledge board, you know, and there was, you know, you walk into a room and you've got the battalion sergeant major in the center, and you've got all the first sergeants flanking him, and they each pepper you with mm-hmm. two questions each, and it went everything from the UCMJ to demonstrate the firing positions with the saw, you know, guide on, you know, it was everything, right? So back when you pressed your uniforms, you know, all that stuff. So um, it, it was really, it was, it, it, yeah, I, I was very, very proud um, when I saw that I had gotten selected. Yeah, I, I, that's, and, you know, having seen meritorious boards go from the officer side, I, I just know that they are, they're few and far between, you know, for somebody to get picked up for meritorious corporal is, is a huge achievement. I'll bet you, you feel better or as equally proud about that as, as any personal award that you have on your uniform. I, I can just tell that because you just told the story. But I'm curious now, so you're, you're a corporal now, and then like, tell me about Corporal Reynolds standing in formation right after 9-11, because, because nobody in that battalion had probably been to combat in at least a decade, probably, I mean, if anybody had served in combat, it was probably either 
Desert Stormer's Somalia at that point. So I'm going to make the assumption that no one under the rank of Staff Sergeant had any combat experience. And now somebody comes out to formation and says, get your shit ready, we're going to war. What was that like? So we had, uh, our first sergeant had deployed to Desert Storm. And a couple of the staff MCOs had deployed to Somalia. We had one staff sergeant. Uh, his name was Staff Sergeant Dave Parker. And he was the anomaly out of all of them, right? So I told you that whole story about how we had, you know, these these very physically fit, you know, poster board image, drill instructor, reconnaissance, scout sniper, all the boxes checked, uh, cut yourselves on the crease of their camis type staff NCOs. And then there was Dave Parker. And Dave Parker was the guy that didn't look, he looked kind of like Robin Williams. Uh, he was the guy, did you ever see the Marines back in the day that would hand sew their own name tapes on? Oh, to their yeah. to their camis, right? Yes. And it yeah. looked it looked it looked kind of it looked kind of crappy. Um he was a mm-hmm. guy that he would buff shine his boots, vice spit shining, right? The thing about him was he was the genuine article. That guy had served in pretty much every infantry regiment and reconnaissance battalion since I think he he showed me his service record book. He had C school in his service record book. So he was part of that group that went to security forces for to get assigned to ship duty. Ships, that's right. How long yeah, been, the, the yeah so that's weapons, how, right. Right. That's how long he'd been in the Marine Corps. And then Panama, Somalia, like he had done it all, right? Uh, he was, he was a, a mule packer in um, Bridgeport. So like the story about this guy was he was the total opposite of all these like very – uh, aggressive uh, staff NCOs, but nobody messed with him. They kind of gave him like his space. And he was one of the, he never yelled. He never screamed. He was the guy when we went to jungle warfare training, he disappeared into the woods with some 550 cord and he came back an hour later carrying two wild pigs that he had snared. And we cut him up and cooked him that like, I mean, he was just, he, when you think field Marine, it's this guy. So he was the guy that um, had the most combat experience then. And he didn't really say much. He, you know, he, he, he was like, everybody else was kind of beating their chest and talking about their experiences in Desert Storm, trying to talk about what war was like. Uh, he was really quiet. But, um, you know, there's a story later on that I'll probably tell uh, where, he, where he really comes to the forefront. But, yeah, for, for the most part, no one knew what to expect. No one really knew uh, what we we're going to be doing. And, for the, and, you know, I tell Marines this all the time. The possibility that we would go to war seems so foreign. Even when, you know, we could get on a ship, they could give us ammo. And, you know, in my mind, I thought they're going to call us back at the last minute. You know, it's going to be stand down or whatever. I remember saying to my mother the day after September 11th, I called my mother on the barracks payphone and she was very concerned about me. And I said, mom, are you kidding me? We're never going to do anything. Right. And, you know, lo and behold, um, she still reminds me of that to this day. So essentially a lot of people running around doing things that they thought would get them ready for combat. Some good, some not so good. So, so Dave Parker, he was your platoon sergeant? Nah, that's, or, see, that's the story in and of itself. So if you want me to, so, guessing, so we I'm have, guessing not. Well, so here's what happened. So we finally did. So we went to Kuwait. We got off, the, we, you know, we got on the USS Baton. We floated over. And my platoon sergeant was a gunnery sergeant who had come to the, come to the battalion um, after our first deployment. So he was not part of that crew of uh, staff and COs that I just spoke so highly about. I don't know. I don't know. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe, you know, as an older guy now, maybe he had problems in his personal life. I don't know. I can only tell you what it looked like from my perspective as a junior Marine, right? Which is something that, you know, is a learning point in and of itself. But he never participated in anything. 
He was always yelling and screaming. He did little things like you would get your ice resupply at Cax and he wouldn't give it out to the, to the Marines. He would keep it for himself and he'd put his camel back on top of it in the cooler, right? To keep his water cold. And then in the morning, we'd watch him dump out all this ice while we were like baking in the defense. <sighs> he would just, you know, he had no interaction with the Marines other than, you know, kind of yelling at him, right? So, you know, you saw him in the morning, that formation, he'd yell at you. You'd go about your day. At the end of the day, he'd yell at you. Um, we did a hike in Okinawa and uh, our platoon commander took us out. We were hiking around Schwab and he just, he had enough of the hike and he said, screw this. And he walked away. Right. And he like left the Marines, like, you know, and it's, it was just a bad circumstance, right? Cause you know, you think and you go like, well, that was like a 23 year old Lieutenant kind of dealing with a guy that's, you know, 10, 15 years older than him, 10, 15 years more time in the Marine Corps than him. Right. And that officer's putting a position like that officer does, you know, most officers aren't going to turn around and grab that gun and be like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Get back in formation. They're just going to kind of stand there and let this guy kind of do whatever he wants because, you know, like it or not, you know, that's a, that's a situation that most aren't prepared for, nor should they be. Right. Um, so he yeah. was our platoon sergeant for Iraq. The day we got in the trucks to uh, start the movement North, he was in my truck, machine gun section leader. He sat next to me and he was just kind of going on and on about how this, this war was stupid and uh, we're going to die and, you know, all this other stuff. And it was really, really strange. He degraded so much over time so that the first little portion of, our, of, of the invasion, we crossed the border and we didn't see a whole lot of anything except wide open desert. We were following and trace the 1st Marine Division. And day by day, he would just get weirder and weirder. Um, he stopped shaving. He stopped resupplying the Marines. He insisted that I call him on, call him by his first name. We stopped right outside of An Nazaria, Iraq, and um, we were digging in. We started taking mortar fire, and uh, I'm with the machine gunners. We're setting up our positions, and he was back with the mortars, and he calls me over the radio, and he says, uh, I need you back at my position. So I go running back to his position. Now, I mean, it's not – mortars are landing, but, you know, I'm not going to make the, play this up and make it sound like this was some sort of, like, Vietnam or platoon scenario, right? I mean, they're – but I run, I run as fast as I can back there to my, I jump into the mortar hole and I'm like, you know, Gunny, what do you need? And he goes, uh, my cigarettes are in the truck. Can you go grab them? You know, I'm like, Gunny, you called me here in a during mortar fire to uh, get you your cigarettes, you know? So, um, make a long story short is that evening we sat outside, uh, Ann Nazaria and, you know, the, the one, two got into it. One, two took, sustained some casualties. So the very next day we were told that we were going to go in and my platoon commander came and was giving us an order. And, you know, the platoon commander for weapons platoon normally is the uh, fist team leader as well. So he had this giant battle board. So he takes the battle board and they're covered in plexiglass. He kind of drops it in the sand and starts giving a quick frago of what we were going to do. The gunny's muttering under his, under his breath. And the lieutenant finally is like, had enough and says, gunny, what gunny, you have something you want to add? And the gunny picks up the, the, uh, the, the map and chucks it. He throws it and he says, this is suicide. I'm not going. Right. So they could not convince the gunny to get on the truck. He walked away. Uh, refused to go on the mission. So now you have a weapons platoon that's leaderless going into th this would have been, this was our first uh, combat uh, up to that point. Nothing had happened to us, you know, except, except for that mortar attack that we took the first day when we were digging in. So now we were actually going to go into the attack and our gunny was like, I'm not going right. So what was interesting was um, you could look at that and you could say like, you know, that's terrible, right? You, you know, Marines could walk, but you're not going to tell you, that incident was meaningless because Dave Parker, that staff sergeant that I'm telling you about, that guy yeah. that had cut his teeth and all these recon battalions or whatever, the guy with like, you know, not the greatest uniform, not the best haircut, you know, um, 
stepped up and covered third platoon and weapons platoon. So the joke was we called ourselves Task Force Parker. This guy ran two platoons <laughs> in combat, okay, and took took care of all of us. So, you know, you have this thing where you say, uh, sometimes you can look at it and say, um, two things I took from this, right? You can look at it and say, here's what happened in my deployment. You know, my, my gunny walked away. Or you can turn around and say, extreme circumstances bring out the worst and best in people. And that's the beauty of this kind of this this environment that we operate in as a Marine Corps. It's like, yeah, you may see something like that, but you're going to see someone. You're going to see leadership. You're going to come out of the most unlikely places, and you're going to see someone step up and really do incredible things, which is what Parker did. And the other thing that I learned from this is that as I got older in the Marines, I really pay attention to staff and CO and officer relationships, especially as a company first sergeant, a company gunny, I am like keenly aware of the relationship between the platoon commander and the platoon sergeant, because I often think all the time about what it must have felt like to be that lieutenant that's dealing with this military professional, this guy that's supposed to advise him, this guy that's supposed to kind of show him the ropes and help him through some of the things that he's never seen before due to his experience and have this guy be a complete liability and put this lieutenant in a position every single day where he's trying to do the right thing, but he's fighting with the guy that's supposed to be his counterpart um, just to get up and do his job and take care of the Marines. So, And the the amount of turmoil that that must have brought that lieutenant. Uh, So it's something that I watch constantly because I think it's unfair to a junior officer to get paired up with a, a a seasoned Marine like that and have it be. And, you know, obviously you can see that there, if you ever come across an officer that, you know, has some issues with um, trust or, or micromanagement or whatever, you know, Marines will turn around and say, oh, he's got an ego. I, I don't believe that. I think if you were to peel the onion back, I think that in most cases uh, they were burned by a staff non-commissioned officer or counterpart when they first, you know, their early experiences with a, with a, with a enlisted Marine staff NCO was unfavorable. So something yeah. that, you know, continues to feed itself. I want to spend a few minutes digging in on a couple of questions on that, that scenario that you just told us about, because I have some questions about from your perspective, because you're a corporal, right? From your perspective, did Dave Parker just emerge out of the smoke as this leader and say, I am taking over task force Parker right now with third platoon and, and weapons platoon. Was that your perspective or was there sort of like, cause where was the Lieutenant? Where was the company first sergeant? Where was the company commander? with all that drama going on with this guy, because it couldn't have been just Corporal Reynolds that saw it. Everybody had to see it. So what was the catalyst for the inaction in keeping that shippered around? <laughs> I can only Again, look back not on know. it now. That's the same question that I have, right? Because you should, you would think that, I, I would say that may, I don't know, maybe the Lieutenant was saying that he's good, I got it. Or maybe, maybe, maybe this wasn't getting reported. I, you know, I definitely don't think that it was a type of environment back then where a corporal would feel comfortable walking up to, you know, the company commander and saying, I got to tell you about this guy, right? You kind of yeah. just did your, you know, you did your part. That's fair. Right. And for a while, he was so eccentric with the yell. He had this crazy hot, shrill voice, right? He was so eccentric that I think that they thought it was funny at first, right? I don't think anybody really quite could piece together. I think they thought he might've had some character flaws. I don't think anybody would have been able to tell that he would, you know, not go on the mission, you know, or refuse to go on a mission. I don't think anybody thought it would get that deep. And then also in the early days of the invasion, the company is just, things are moving so fast or, and, and, and the situation was like continuously evolving. I, I don't know because we had great leadership. We had a great first sergeant, a great company commander. I don't know how keyed in they were on him because I think that their attention was, was elsewhere. And I also think with weapons platoon, the Marines are usually attached out and, and, and part of other platoons. So I also think that 
It could have been a case of I'm stuck with this guy. We're in the middle of combat, right? So at least he's in a platoon where, you know, his presence, he, it would have been a lot worse if he was leading a rifle platoon or, or you know, at, at the forefront of a rifle platoon. So I don't know. I do know this, though, is that um, Parker didn't come from the – Parker was the guy that, I, like I said, I agree that I, I'm one of the – you can see me right now. I've got a high and tight haircut. My uniform is, you know – squared away right i i am one of the guys that 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 truly believes like you got to give your you've got to like do your best in all areas right so like my uniform's always correct i always have a haircut i'm physically fit you know all those things parker was all those things parker just his you know as well as i do like back then guys walked around their uniforms used to crunch right with the starch right yeah right with the starch Mm -hmm. right parker was a little bit different because he just he you know he'd steam press his uniform he'd be buff shine and stuff right so he wasn't you know like spit and polish but he was the genuine article. So everybody kind of knew that he was, he was, uh, he had all the street cred in the world, but it was an opportunity for him. Or it's actually kind of interesting because of all these guys that were, had done all these things and were these great images of the Marine Corps. It's like, you know, who are we going to give the guy to run two platoons? We're going to give it to Staff Sergeant Parker, you know? And, and he was, a, you know, to be honest with you, he was a terminal Staff Sergeant. He, he got out of the Marine Corps as a Staff Sergeant, right? I think yeah. in 2006, he got out of the Marine Corps as a Staff Sergeant, but it's like he, was a calming effect on those Marines. Like he would just, he had this, I think he's from West Virginia. He had this accent where he would just, and very, very calmly, like when we were taking mortar fire, we'd say, gentlemen, that's the incoming mortar fire. You might want to take cover, right? And everybody just kind of like, he was calm. So as long as Parker was with you, as long as Parker was good, you knew everything was going to be okay, right? Yeah. He was that guy. I love those stories. And here's why, because, and I've said this before in other episodes, but if I was given the opportunity to rewind my career, if somebody said to me, What's the one thing you would do a do-over on? I would say getting upset and yelling. So counterproductive. I didn't know it when I was 22, 23 years old. You probably didn't know it when you were a corporal either. I, but boy, if, there's, if people are listening out there, I just, I just think that there is so much more leadership that is exuded in a calm voice where you can articulate using real words and communicate with people why you're displeased with something, why it didn't meet your expectations, rather than just going off like, you know, Fourth of July fireworks, and you just you just kind of reinforce that that perspective that I have now about. And I really wish that I had had to do over on that. And you know, like officers really aren't screamers; they shouldn't be. But like, which makes me feel like even the little bit that I did, I, I really regret it. And Lieutenant General Bellin was just on. He talks told a story about how he lost his temper one time out in the field too, and he regrets it. And 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 then to hear you tell a story about you know the great leader of Task Force Parker just standing around saying, "Gentlemen, you may want to take some cover." It's, one of those. And I'll also take a second because I do, th- this hasn't come up before, but let's just take three minutes and just talk about the nostalgia of the old uniforms that most people don't even understand <laughs> these days. I mean, <laughs> for, for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, this was before the digi camis came out. We had the old woodland camis, which again, somehow are cool again with the special ops guys, I guess. Sure. Know. But, sure. you know, we used to have to take them to the dry cleaners and have them pressed. And you yep. would go to like the dry cleaners. If you took your camis to the dry cleaner in your hometown and wherever, wherever that isn't around a Marine Corps base, they're not going to press them right. Like you, the dry cleaners have, and it's like heavy starch. And when you get them, they are literally, the, the trousers were literally like cardboard and you had to stick your hand down each leg of the trouser just to separate the material to get your leg down into it. And we would starch those things within an inch of their lives. And then after a while, the starch would wear out and the camis could still ostensibly be clean and service you're like okay but the one the minute the minute the pockets separated away or anything like that you know is just and watching people just the, sh- the boots and starching their covers and starching their their utilities 
I just, it, it brings, when you said it, like it just, I had this flashback of just putting my camis on on Monday morning and putting my hand down the, the, oh, the, yeah. the, the camp. Right. And then, and then the guys that would walk around and not really press their camis and you get, you know, you, you had this little like, I don't mean, know what a piece of shit that guy is. Yeah. Yeah. But, right. The guys, uh, no, that they're probably like, boy. you know, Dave Parker, right? Just <laughs> he would, so he, yeah. I remember the guys would, uh, all the little things that they would do, they'd sew their pockets shut or to have the tightest sleeves, they would cut their, cut the long sleeves off. So there'd be half of that. So they'd have a flatter roll. Those were the summertime camis. That's or right. Like fishing, fishing line in the seams to keep it like, just a guy. I think one guy told me one time that he baked his boots to keep like the shine. So you shine them, you put them in the oven, like all the things guys did for their uniforms back then. Right. Oh yeah. It was you nuts. Know, right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I try not to talk about that much around like junior Marines because it, it does sound ridiculous where it's like, you know, okay. You talk about making sure your uniform squared away and pressing it and doing all those things, but it's also like, you know, the guy's like, well, I wouldn't, you know, are you telling me it's a good thing that you spent your Sunday with your boots in the oven trying to get the, right? you know, like, so. It is yeah, some nostalgia yeah, yeah. though. It's fun to talk to, oh, you know, for somebody sure. else who, who knows exactly what you're talking about. And um, for sure. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you also remember ironing on the, the pocket, the, e- the Eagle Wilbon anchor on the front of the pocket, you know, you had to yeah. iron that on. It didn't come on there. Like and if they you got it wrong, they were now. unserviceable. If you got them wrong, it was right. unserviceable. It, you could go out and buy a brand new cami blouse and it would have nothing on it. And you would have to iron that at, and before name tapes. So yeah. even before name tapes, you would have to iron on the EGNA and it said USMC underneath it. And it had these dotted lines where you're supposed to cut the, the, tra- you know, the piece of paper out. And some people would just, you'd see them and they'd, get, they'd iron the dotted lines onto their, their pockets too, and unserviceable. You know? Anyway, good, good nostalgia, good, good catch up on some funny old stuff. Yep. I still have those old camis around here somewhere. I just can't, that, my black boots, I can't, I just can't bring myself to throw them out. My wife says, you know, why don't you get rid of this stuff? I'm like, are you kidding me? You know how many places those boots have trampled around the world? Well, last thing was that a Marine thought I photoshopped. Uh, I posted a picture on Instagram and it was me getting an award as a corporal. And it was during that time period where the Marine Corps was, was transitioning out of tricolors and into digis, right? So there was a period that where, where you wore both. You'd see Marines in both. So a guy thought I photo, the guy thought I photoshopped it. He's like, why are you, why is everybody in a different uniform? Like a guy, a guy thought that this was fake. He couldn't understand, you know, Marines didn't, right, Marines because don't know back that. Back then, you know? I think. They issued them out in stages, I think. And you could also wear the new camis with the black boots. There was also that was, too, because there weren't enough, there weren't enough of the tan boots going around. Yeah. From what I remember, it was uh, open at first. The first purchases were open to like staff and CEOs and officers at the Lejeune PX. Yeah. And it was like very hard to come by a set. So I think it was like by 2004, we had to be turned over completely to, to, uh, right. Digis. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. So let's go back to the, to the officer staff and CEO relationship. I, I think sure. there's, there's a good conversation to have there. Because there's so many, there's so many junior leaders, both on the listed side and the and the officer side, that listen to this, and and every single one of them is mentally inside their own head asking this question, like, what can you tell me that will keep me from making a colossal mistake somewhere down the road, whether I embarrass myself or get somebody hurt or whatever it is? Everybody wants to know how to avoid the big mistake, and then I look at second lieutenants. And, and I was a second lieutenant once, right? And, and I'll tell this to, okay, everybody likes to make fun of a second lieutenant. I got news for y'all. The second lieutenants make fun of themselves. They're just not mm-hmm. doing it around you guys, right? So we all know. So the, no, no second lieutenant thinks that they're, you know, the next chesty puller walking in the door. But I, I, I do think that the interesting thing about being a second lieutenant and walking into a platoon is that you have a platoon sergeant. And that platoon sergeant is a staff sergeant 
which means they have been at the platoon level for what, 12, 13 years? Probably eight to 12 years, eight to, tw- eight you know, tw- minimum eight, eight to 12, yeah. right? Right. More. So they've been doing, cases. they've been, they have been slogging it out in a platoon for eight to 12 years and you walk in the door. And that relationship is so important because there is no way you're going to be successful as an officer unless you have a staff NCO that actually cares about you. And that relationship is so important. And, and I can just speak from experience because I was fortunate enough to have my very first platoon sergeant, a guy I'm going to use his name because I just revere him to this day, Staff Sergeant Ed Garrison, then Staff Sergeant Ed Garrison. If it wasn't for Ed Garrison, I don't think that I would have had any modicum of success as, a, as an officer immediately or even all the way through to the day I retired. He was such an imprint on my life. He was one of my moments in leadership that I just wonder from your perspective, how can a second lieutenant walk into an any platoon? It doesn't matter. The MOS doesn't matter. How do they walk in and establish a rapport with somebody that has eight to 12 years of experience and do it in a genuine way to where they can develop a relationship that is productive? I would say with confidence. So the one thing that I think uh, both require is, you know, staff NCOs need to understand that the Marine Corps does a, does a phenomenal job of churning out consistency out of Quantico, right? So I have served with tons of different officers. I've served with officers that maybe weren't as talented as others, right? I have only served with maybe one officer in 22 years that I could turn around and say, that guy just didn't care. Right. So that's a really, really good quality metric for what comes out of TBS. Right. So speaking from the infantry side, uh, the staff and CEO needs to understand this. That they're always going to come out the same. Right. I have. And, and this is this is just a fact. They're going to come out. They're going to want to PT the platoon to death. They're going to want to run every single class under the sun and train in between training and white space training. They're going to be locking on classes. They're going to be doing all sorts of things because these are the things that these guys have, these guys and girls have been dreaming about doing the whole time they've been in that pipeline, right? So staff and COs that st- that's turn, that try to fight this every time they come out, they get a reputation of being adversarial. They don't want to, you know, every time the lieutenant asks them to do something or, or brings up an idea, it's no, sir, that's not the way we do this here, sir, you know. Understand that a second lieutenant, you know, who would respect and respect a person that steps on deck that's supposed to be the leader and turns around and says, I don't know what I'm doing. Please, you know, you're in charge, right? That that negates the whole purpose of having a platoon commander, right? So I think it's like what I tell a lot of people. I actually was talking to a bunch of lieutenants when I was in Quantico and uh, one, of them, one of them kind of asked the same question. I said, so if you want to feel good and you don't want to feel intimidated anymore, get your get your squads together, get them outside check weapons out of the armory and just say contact left, right? And I guarantee you, you are not going to see, in most cases, a situation where you're like, wow, you guys have really got it down. You're going to see a lot of work that needs to be done, right? And that's going to let you know where you fit in, right? They come out, what they lack in experience, they more than make up for in training. It's some of the best training in the world. They come out with a a, a great foundation and doctrine. So what they get at, at the infantry officer course is what, it takes eight to 12 years to get as a staff and CEO at infantry unit leaders course. And, you know, IOC obviously um, is, has, is done better. Um, so you get a guy that's coming into the platoon that is well-versed in tactics, TTPs, right? Up to, up to date information. And that, and, you know, the training that they've been through is extremely difficult, right? So 
understand that as the platoon sergeant. And then when you're looking at your platoon sergeant, understand this, your billets overlap, right? They're not the same. So what you know, as far as tactics, TTPs, and what they taught you, this guy can pepper and flavor with, Hey, I saw this, you know, this, I, this is how we did it in Fallujah. You know what I mean? You, you throw experience at them. Right. But right. you have to be an equal counterpart, meaning you have to give that platoon commander and that platoon commander has got to give that staff. So you've got to respect their role. You've got to respect their position, right? He's here to do this. You're my responsibility, sir. What are your goals? What, and your, you know, where do you, what's your vision for this platoon? I can make that happen. You know, flip side to it is, you know, staffs aren't, how can you help me make that happen? Here's how I can help you. Right. Here's how, here's, here's what I think. Right. And you come together. I've only had one adversarial relationship with a platoon commander my whole, my whole time. And for me, the key to success is to not be the no guy. So here's the thing, you know, I had a platoon commander one time say, I want to take the Marines on a run to the front gate at Camp Lejeune. I don't remember. I haven't been on Camp Lejeune in a while. That's far. Right. And I wanted to tell, you know, the, I could have said, sir, no. Right. Because, you know, uh, it's not going to be what you think. Right. I said, sounds good, sir. I just make sure the Marines are hydrated. You know, told the Marines, hey, hydrate. We're running to the gate tomorrow. Right. So he saw with his own eyes that half the platoon fell out. Right. But you know who was right next to him the whole time? His platoon sergeant. Right. Sir, I'm willing. I'm willing to do what you say. Right. Here I was. We, we just did this crazy PT session. And I was right alongside you. So maybe next time when I say, sir, that's a bad idea. You'll listen to me because I've demonstrated to you that I'm not saying no because I don't want to do something. I'm not saying no because I'm lazy. I'm saying no because it's generally a bad idea. But you got to demonstrate that first. Right. Both sides have to step into the situation. The officer needs to step in with some confidence and the staff and CO needs a little bit of humility. And understanding what the roles are. For me, I have always, I've had peers of mine kind of get, get real pissed off because, you know, like the lieutenant or, or the, even as a gunny, the company commander plans, you know, he planned this attack and he didn't consult me. My thing is I've always been focused on the mechanics of war, right? So an officer gets an, gets an order that he is allowed to go sit somewhere with his right in the rain and his red lens and go look at a map and take the time he needs to plan an attack. Flip side is who's running rehearsals, who's issuing the pyro, who's issuing the smoke, who's making sure the squads are up and moving. That is the role of the staff and CO, right? So I don't have the time or the opportunity to go sit there with this guy and we're going to plan the perfect attack. That's his job. My job is with just to temper my experience and know, hey, we're going to go do a night attack. So here, here's what I'm doing. We're going to start practicing how to load a PLD. We're going to start talking about all the things that I know because I've done a million night attacks that are common to all so that when he steps out ready to give his order, that platoon is done a large portion of the rehearsals, the Marines have their gear, they've been inspected, they're good to go. And now they're ready to take an order that that man's had time to, you know, to prepare. Flip side to it is, is that when, whatever element he sends me with, whether it's a support by fire, whether it's, you know, the assault element, by virtue of my presence, me, the staff and CEO, my experience, he can bank on the fact that that element is going to be the best damn element in the platoon by virtue of my presence yeah. being there. So that's, that's, that's how I kind of balance it out. Let me, let me flip it too, because this is really a fantastic conversation. So tell me what the perfect second lieutenant does when he walks into his platoon and starts to develop a relationship with his platoon sergeant. Like, what does that perfect second lieutenant say, do? You kind of maybe already answered it, but it's such an important thing. I want you to punctuate it by, by saying it again, because there's, there is gold there. I think if he walked in and said, you know, I'm excited to be here. It's damn good to meet you. I'm looking forward to working with you because, you know, I know that there's a lot that I can learn from you, right? I think that that right there becomes, oh, wow, 
You know what I mean? Because what happens is a lot of times you have two, I say alpha male, but what I mean is alphas, right? So we have female alphas, right? So you have, sure. you have these two alphas that are kind of locked in a crab dance of like miscommunication and what you perceive to be going on, right? So, you know, you kind of walk, you, you try to sniff each other out. You try to read into each other's actions, right? You know, s- lieutenant comes in and he kind of doesn't say anything or he comes in and says like, you know, hey, how you doing? He's, and he's very brief and then he leaves. It's kind of like, what's that guy's problem, right? And at the same time on the, on the officer side, if you walk in, you know, and you kind of just size him up, I'm sure he's like, uh, what's his problem, right? So you have this, this thing that can go on for, and the only people that suffer is the Marines, right? right. So I think that- if you turn around and say, you know, just for an officer walking in say, Hey, I look forward to working with you, you know, and I look forward to, you know, like learning from you. Right. And for the staff and CO side, it's like, Hey, sir, I, I, you know, like I welcome it, you know what I mean? And I'm good. And I won't let you down. Right. So that's what it comes down to. Right. Cause I've seen this too. And this is a fact, right? Good lieutenants get accepted much quicker, much quicker than um, a staff and CO. Right. So if you have a good platoon commander, those Marines love him. That becomes like the squad leaders all want to be around him. He's in there, right? The staff NCO a lot of times finds himself on the outside looking in where he gets by, you know, he can get circumvented and now it just becomes the platoon commander and squad leader show, right? And the staff sergeant is relegated to just passing out chows, the chow guy and the weapons guy, counting weapons, you know? So really the staff NCOs need to understand that is, is that um, you got a young male or female coming in that's very athletic, very, very physically fit. They just came through a training pipeline that ensures that, right? They're motivated because if they weren't motivated to be here, they would have never got commissioned. They would have dropped out and they would have got sent home, right? So you're dealing with someone that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna make you show and prove, right? We, we can sit back and talk about it all day long and you can kind of, you know, tell war stories and, but you're going to get this young officer that's going to step on deck and go like, I've heard the story, show me what you're all about, right? And you can't get mad when they ask you that, because that's the whole purpose of you being there, right? Right. If you get it wrong, then you're going to have a person. If you get that wrong, you're going to have, you're tainting that officer for the rest of their career, you know, or you're going to, or, great, or yeah. some other staff, you know, some other staff NCO is going to have to step in and do extra work to try to recompensate for the uh, lackluster image that you've painted of an enlisted Marine in that officer's mind. So, you know. I think to, to summarize, I think that a lieutenant just needs to work, just step in confident and say those words. That's it. It's on us. It's the staff and COs, right? To show them what we're about, right? Because right. We're, we're the Marine Corps. Right. How would it be received if a second lieutenant walked into that same scenario, brand new platoon sergeant, just said, hey, Staff Sergeant Reynolds, make me the best lieutenant that I can be. Like, is that going to resonate? Even better. There's just some some humility in that statement that that's also just completely honest. And I reflect back on being an officer, a young officer and walking into a platoon and, 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 and what you just said just made me kind of flash back. And I think, okay, when a new officer walks in, the, the first thing he wants to do is make a good impression or, or not make a bad impression. Let's just, let's just say it's not make a bad impression. Right. And, and what can they really do to make that first impression? Well, unless you're walking in and taking over a platoon in the middle of a, you know, a field operation, you're in garrison. So what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to PT, right? And what have you learned as an officer to do for the past two and a half years? PT, right? PT, that's OCS, TBS, PT, 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 PT. And then IOC, right? PT. So you're like, okay, well, that's one thing I know how to do. I don't know, maybe a great move for a lieutenant to do would be to come in and say, hey, staff sergeant, what's, what's a good way for us to start PTing together as a group with me as a, as a new platoon commander? And then just ask the, and say like, Hey, sir, let's start off with a three mile run, you know, 
And then that way you can kind of gauge where we are. If nobody falls out, then we'll kind of ratchet it up from there. Sure. Maybe that's a good sure. technique that people, yeah. I've seen others come in and just, you know, go on some crazy PT session and it kind of lets the Marines know like, Hey, that's what he's capable of. Right. So you come in, you know, you, you show your capabilities. Right. Yeah. Right. And then, and then the very next time it's like, you know, Hey, we're going to do it. So, you know, now that I've established that, right. What do you, you know, right. hey, what do you, what do you want to, you know, I guess I'll just do a three mile. Right. So like, I mean, I, it could go either way. It depends on, it depends on, you know, the, the platoon where you're at or whatever, you know, but, uh, I do. I think that that's what, what they're supposed to do, right? They're supposed to come in and be physically fit. They're supposed to come in yeah. and a good officer challenges. It keeps a good officer keeps us honest because you've got this, this, this young, naive person. That's, that's just like, I can't, I'm so happy to be here. Right. I very rarely have ever met a second Lieutenant that's checking into a battalion. It's like, I don't even want to be here. Right. They're like, today's the day. Today is right. the day. Right. Just like you would receive a new Marine, like from SOI, right? You're going to want it. You're not going to want to make this person regret their decision to be a Marine, right? You're going to try, you're going to do everything you can to make this person proud of the organ as a staff NCO, because you, you've given your life to this. Why would you not? Why would you not want to make, put the best foot forward with this person, regardless of how long that they've been in the Marine Corps? You know what I mean? Whether they're a second Lieutenant or a private or a general officer, you know, you as the military professional, the guy that we were just having a conversation about this in work today, we were talking about how if a second lieutenant and a staff NCO were standing somewhere and, you know, Jack Assery was going on with the Marines, right? That staff saw would probably get full, pulled aside quicker to be told, you know better. Right. Why are you letting this go on? Right. We know better. Right. So we need to protect and groom our officer corps, just like you would at a unit when you get brand new privates to put the best foot forward so that we are grooming the next generation of leaders, right? The, the guys are going to be general officers 30 years from now, right? We are, in, we are instilling in them now habits that they're going to carry with them for the rest of their time. Right. So that's how I look at it. Yeah. I'll tell you that, you know, somebody's legacy is General Berger. Right. I gotta, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody's legacy is General Neller. Somebody's legacy is General Mattis. Like there are platoon sergeants out there who met Second Lieutenant Mattis, Neller, Berger, right, Dunford, and that's their legacy. Those staff NCOs, that's their legacy. And you know the funny thing about a second lieutenant walking into a platoon and meeting his staff sergeant for the first time is you have no idea if that guy's going to become the commandant someday. For sure, because he could or she could. For sure. Right. He, seriously, I mean. You just, you, you, have, you really have no idea. And so you know, because you, you don't have any idea, treat every single one of them like they could be. Maybe You know what you can guarantee is that they're going to get put in a position until, they time, until the time that they leave the Marine Corps where they're going to face decisions or be put in a position where, you know, they could, their actions and what they decide to do could, you know, hurt or, you know, impact a lot of Marines, right? So like whether it's a platoon or a division or the whole Marine Corps, right? You want to give that person everything you have to try to make sure that the best quality uh, person is going to be, you know, rise to the top and leave Marines. So, right. I think making, you know, training Marines, it's a two way street because we all like to make fun of the lieutenants for being lost. Right. I mean, it's kind of the ongoing joke, but show me a lieutenant who seriously doesn't know how to land nav and is lost out in the woods. And, right. and I'll show you three or four NCOs who are, who are letting that happen. For sure. Right. Rather For than, sure. all right, hey, listen, lieutenant, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then like working with, working with the lieutenant to get him better at it, just nobody's great at everything. 
So I always joke like I, in the in the back of my mind, I always think when I hear the joke about the lost lieutenant, I think to myself, mm-hmm, not only is there one lost lieutenant, there's three lost NCOs too who are letting that happen. That's For not sure. a counseling session. I'm just saying that you know, if you looked at it differently and said it's my responsibility to make sure I don't have a lieutenant that gets lost out there, and I'm going to make sure that he's not and take pride in that. There's the Hollywood image of like a hapless lieutenant, right? That's clueless. And then the wizened, you know, salty NCO that kind of has to like drag him through combat and, you know, keep him alive because he's nothing but a liability. That's not true. You know, that's not true. That's not even close to true. I've never, you know, and I've served, I've, I've served in combat, you know, and I, I use that term because combat is, you know, with phenomenal officers that, you know, 22, 23 years old can you know handle the stress and not only handle the stress but sometimes like you know that whole phrase the an officer and a gentleman right they so like they they learn how to control themselves to to a degree that you know some senior enlisted can't you know so it's it's an unfair kind of stereotype but i think it's one that kind of feeds into a lieutenant's trepidation of checking into a battalion right do they all think of me that way like you know like like the goober that's going to get them all lost you know because we key in on that, just like they key in on a sergeant major that, you know, says, get a haircut, right? It's like, oh, that's all he, you know, I was with the special person MAGTAF with uh, India 3-7 and my guys had, you know, maybe messed something up or I, I think I came down to visit the trap line. It was a mess. So, you know, I had all the squad leaders and I was kind of barking at them or whatever. And one of the Osprey pilots was talking to my company commander. He saw a guy in a frog suit, physically fit with a hindsight haircut. And he's like, so what, so is your first sergeant like some sort of drill instructor or something? And my company commander's like, no, he's an infantry guy, you know, but it's that, it's the image, right? It's the stereotype, right? So there's always going to be that stereotype, uh, you know, different things in the Marine Corps. It's, it's just what you choose to focus on. I, I, I don't, and I worked at IULTC. What I saw was a lot of staff sergeants that are going through like infantry unit leaders course or sergeants going, you know, going through AIMC. They're, they're trying to get that knowledge and they're trying to go through those courses so that they could be keep up with their platoon commander. Because, you know, Quantico does does uh, create a, a damn good product. They, they do, this is a fact. That's a, that's a great way to segue into a, a different set of questions, a different topic. But go back to your company gunny time and mm-hmm. talk to, tell me about some of the really awesome young corporals and sergeants that worked for you and what made them so awesome? So I was company gunny for Fox 2-4. I think the, the thing that makes them good is that they, they, they want to train, right? They want to be the best. They want to train their guys every day, right? So the best qualities in a small unit leader as a corporal or sergeant back then when I was a company gunny, what I would look for was the guys that you could never find, right? So you know, there used to be this old adage of like, if you want to not get assigned to a working party, get out of the barracks. Because if Gunny finds you, you're going to go on a working party, right? So these Marines would always be in the backyard. That's the beauty of Camp Pendleton is that there is this wide open area that you don't have to check out with anybody. You could just walk into and you could spend the whole day if you want practicing immediate action drills, patrol base operations. You could build tape houses. You could do all sorts of things to uh, get your guys ready. And you know, the sky's the limit and you don't have to call range control. You don't have to do anything except walk over to the armory and draw out your weapons. So the best corporals and sergeants were the ones doing that. And more importantly, the best corporals and sergeants were the ones that were actually taking the time to like establish SOPs with their squads, right? The squad, you know, you could look out and you could see the whole squad is set up, you know, fairly identically with like items that are common to all um, the squad, all their immediate action drills were, 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 were tight. The way they did business, the rooms, you know, the way they did PT, everything, you could tell a well-drilled squad against a, um, you know, one that kind of had a, a, a squad leader that wasn't really that good. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, the backyard is a, is 
It's a wonderful thing out there at Camp Pendleton. So those NCOs, did they have the latitude to get out there and train their guys? What did yes. the lieutenant and the staff sergeant do when they were out there doing their own thing? Were they supervising? Were they did sort of like half and half, sort of like go out, do your own thing, but I may come in and check in with you? I think it's a little bit of both. So I yeah. think that, you know, we used to, have you ever heard the analogy like, I don't want to see how the sausage is made? Yeah. Right. So we, sometimes it's like, you know, hey, there's certain things that are in a squad leader's purview, right? As, as long as the squad leader is meeting the intent of the platoon commander, the platoon sergeant, then they should be free to, to, you know, go about their business the way that they need to, to accomplish the mission. So, you know, hey, I think, I think it's very valid to say, hey, we're going to have white space training during this time, meaning we're not going to be in the field. I don't have anything planned. What are your plans, right? So, you know, a good, a good thing for an NCO to remember is this. If you don't have a plan, someone's going to make a plan for you, right? So you have a lot of guys that are like, oh, it's, you know, this is bullshit. They're always telling me what to do. And it's like, well, what did you have? Oh, we weren't doing anything, right? So if you're going to screw around and play Xbox in the barracks, then you better, you know, yeah, the lieutenant's going to come around, the platoon sergeant's going to come around, and going to tell you what you're going to do, right? So the best guys always were forward thinking to say, hey, sir, between this time and this time, I'd love to take the boys in the backyard and go over, you know, immediate action drills, or we'd like to go over patrolling, right? No lieutenant says, no, sergeant, that's a bad idea, right? I think a lot of times what they turn on says, that, that's great. I'd love to come out and maybe give a class or help you, you know? Sounds good, sir. You know, and the lieutenant will come out and watch, add some things, you know, and that's, 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 that's perfectly fine. Hey, sir, what do you got? It's his platoon, right? Your squad, but his platoon, right? So that, that was the best case scenario. So I think it's a, it's a mix, right? So the lieutenant needs to give them that latitude, provide them the time to work one-on-one with their squad, right? Free of any sort of intrusion or obstruction or, or, you know, what have you, right? But also the squad leader needs to understand that, you know, you're going to have your window for do for that. So have a plan, right? And then there's going to be platoon time, right? And then there's going to be company time. And, you know, one of the things that I used to do was I used to keep a three by five card in my pocket, right? Because I realized I will never get the time that I need all the time I need in one shot to go work on all the things that I want, but I am going to get our increments here and there, right? While I'm waiting for trucks or, you know, we don't got anything going on between this time and this time in the rear. And I'm going to pull out that three by five card. And these are going to be all of the things that I know I need to work on with my squad, right? So like case in point, Lieutenant would say like, hey, Reynolds, we're going to have some downtime with the platoon sergeant would say, hey, we don't got anything going on between this time and this time. I pull it out and go, I'm going to go do ambushes with my guys. You know, sounds good. You know, what are you guys doing? Uh, you know, the other squad is, what are you guys going to do? Oh, I think we're going to do that too. Okay, great. Right. I always had a plan because when you have right. a plan, the people that get pissed off are the people that don't have a plan. Why are you being told what to do all the time? It's probably because you don't have a plan and, you know, people feel like they need to supervise you. So. Yeah. So I know senior leaders, you know, are generally pretty humble about themselves, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell me if you remember like the very first time that you were really proud of yourself as a leader. Yeah. So <laughs> I was a machine gunner. I got out of the Marine Corps and came back in. And when we went back for the second go round in Iraq, keeping a dedicated weapons platoon was unnecessary. So what they did was they took, they took me and I went from being a machine gunner to a rifle squad leader, right? Which was like pretty scary to me because I had never led a patrol in my life. I knew machine guns, but I didn't know a whole lot about being a rifle squad leader. And the rifle squad leaders that I did know um, that I really respected, like really knew their craft. So uh, I had, there was like a lot of, of anxiety on my part. So I spent a lot of time talking to everybody that I knew that I respected that were 0311. And I spent a lot of time reading books. I, I grabbed up every unit SOP I could to kind of try to give myself a crash course in squad leading before we went to uh, to Fallujah. 
And I sat down with my Marines and I was like, listen, we're going to go through some rehearsals, right? The rehearsals were less for them and more for me to kind of look at, you know, I only knew what contact left looked like from behind a machine gun, right? I didn't know what contact left looked like in relation to everybody else, right? Or, you know, all these things. So we worked through all of this together. And what ended up happening was I, I ended up getting an incredibly tight squad for a couple of reasons, because one is that everybody had a say so kind of in how we established these SOPs, but, but it was, but, but the thing at the start was once we established them, right. This is how we do business. And we established that for everything from the way we prep for patrol, the way we staged our gear, you know, the way we, we did everything and we were always together. So got to the point where um, mid deployment, they said the regimental commander wants to go on a patrol with one of the squads that's currently inside the city of Fallujah. So it was Echo Company and Fox Company. And um, the regimental commander was Colonel Berger for 8th Marines. So our battalion sent out the battalion operations officer to literally patrol with every squad in the battalion to kind of get a sense of like, okay, who's, who, who, who do we want to show as a representative of second, of, of second battalion, six Marines, um, small unit, you know, <laughs> leadership squad leader. Right. And he came out with us. He was going through all the squads. I mean, this guy, I, he was out. I think he was out for like two weeks, just, just tacking on to patrols and going out and, you know, making notes or whatever. My squad was selected to take Colonel Berger out on patrol. Um, and he came with us and he patrolled the whole way from the North, North Fallujah, the train station, all the way through the market, everything. And I mean, it was like tier one IED sites. So we were taking sniper attacks all the time. Uh, he came with us on patrol and I was really proud of the fact that my squad was selected to take the uh, regimental commander out for patrol. I mean, that's the first time, obviously, you know, coming up, seeing my guys get meritorious promoted, you know, awards or see them go on and do great things in their career. You know, I can keep track of them now on social media, or maybe they'll send me a message. All those things make me feel great. But that was the first time that I was like, wow, you know, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm all right. You know? So that was it. How did then Colonel Berger blend in with the squad? (laughs) I mean, just, can you paint that picture for me? Like, and how tempted were you to say like, Hey, you got to hump this, uh, (laughs) this 240 over here, Colonel Berger. No, no, no. I was too, I was too nervous. I just wanted to, I just wanted to, I wanted to, I was praying that we didn't take contact. I was praying that, um, you know, everything was okay. And there was absolutely, so there was, aside from the initial, uh, anxiety of, of having a a full board colonel come on patrol with me, there was none after that. He crossed, you know, he was just, he, he, he was like another rifleman in the patrol. He, 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 and then, you know, he covered danger areas, you know, he did everything that the rest of the Marines did. He even, you know, I, I think he, he even, he made it a point to show up and observe our immediate action drills so that he knew what was going on in the event that we took contact. So it wasn't really, I, I say this all the time because um, I think people think that like leadership kind of gets to a position where they're cozy and comfy somewhere. But I felt like there was no, re- that like that, he did not have to go on patrol with us. And he did. And not only did he, show up for patrol. It wasn't a window patrol. That man showed up early to observe rehearsals, to participate in rehearsals. Because, you know, I, I think it goes back to that first thing is that, you know, he's a, he was a Marine leader. That's what his Marines do. And he was out there that day to, sh- to share the risk with his guys. It's like an internal clock, right? You know, like a good leader says, I haven't been on patrol for a while. You know, the things that a colonel's responsible for, there's every excuse in the world to, to, to never go on patrol, really. But there was something, there's something inside really good leaders to say, it's, it's, I got to go, you know, there's something, you know, I, I got to go share the risk. It's my turn to share the risk with the guys and, or the Marines. And that's what he did. So aside from that initial anxiety at the beginning, 
it was fine. And then we, you know, we crossed over route Michigan through the market, you know, went firm and, and uh, he came up, shook my hand and said, uh, I got to go. Great patrol. You know, they had an escort for, you know, an escort showed up, you know, we, we waited, we pulled security, you know, the gun trucks pulled up, he jumped in, you know, and went to some other else in the, some, somewhere else in the AL. But um, I felt a little, you know, obviously you don't want to, you don't want to look bad, but I was pretty confident right. in my guys. And that's a great story. I'm glad you shared that with us. It's interesting because I think there's a fine line between having people think that, oh, you know, the colonel's coming out on this patrol, you know, is he looking for his combat action ribbon or, right? and, and I know that there's, I know that people think that, right? But then I put myself into General Berger's mind and I think the same thing you just said, which was, hey, I feel a responsibility to go out and share the risk with the men and women that I'm leading. And if I don't do that, what kind of leader am I? And there's this pull between those two things that's that's very difficult and i and i i think knowing every single one of my officer friends i don't have a single officer friend that would have ever walked out on that patrol because they were trying to get a combat action ribbon they would have been out on that patrol because they wanted to share the risk with the men and women that they were leading and i think that takes a lot of lot of guts and i'm, I'm glad to hear that story i'm glad he got to go out with you and i'm glad that was your your takeaway from that too that's that's a really impressive story and i like hearing those kind of stories that's great so another question for you, there's this old saying, you know, there, but for the grace of God, walk I, and I'm kind of wondering if you ever had a moment in your career, and I would, if you've had, if you had a couple, I'd prefer to hear one from combat, where you said to yourself, thank God that wasn't me, and turn that into a formative experience that you were able to apply in the future to some sort of leadership challenge. I, I would say that, um, Again, on a combat deployment, my squad was the React. We, you know, were in the train station in North Fallujah, and um, I had just got done shaving. We just heard a, like an incredible explosion, <clears throat> and then we just gunfire. The company, you know, the guy on radio watch came running out because we used to stage React gear by the trucks and the Marines. We would sit out there like on strip alert, you know. So he's like React, React, React. So you know, it was well drilled. My Marines knew they jumped in the trucks, you know, by fire team, you know, and the trucks got loaded up and I would go into the COC and I would get a brief from my uh, company commander. You know, he basically said that a squad had been ambushed. So we go and, you know, gave us a location. So we go out there and we turn the corner um, and, you know, the Marines are firing down the street and they had taken the first room in a house. So when we got there, we put up alongside the house and the Marines that weren't, you know, engaged in, 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 in the firefight start bringing out Marines, right? And you could tell from the first two that they were they were clearly they had, they were killed in action, um, and then the second one um, had been shot in the chest, and he was fighting for his life. So basically, to make a long story short, is we brought those casualties back to Camp Fallujah, and for the one guy who was a corpsman, he needed a, he needed blood, right? So I was his blood type. So they you know they hooked me up, and I was given blood, and then by that point, my squad got called back. So once they had gotten my blood, the two other Marines were killed in action. And, you know, the chief medical officer came out and said, like, you're the senior Marine here. You need to, uh, you need, you need to identify um, these personnel. So, you know, they brought me back into a back room one by one. And I had to identify the Marines that were killed in action and say, you know, like, yes, that's Lance Corporal so-and-so. Yes, that's getting back and seeing that squad leader, you know, the guy that had lost Marines and like what that had done to him. Right. He did everything right that day. So those Marines, those Marines weren't, weren't lost by any sort of negligence on his part whatsoever. But seeing that and seeing what he was experiencing, seeing what he was going through made it that much more serious for me, you know, saying like, you know, I don't, you know, like we're going to take this 
as we are never going to let our guards down. I, I don't want to live with this burden. I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want to ex- go through this experience if there's anything that I can do about it. So, I mean, I was already attacking my, 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 my responsibilities pretty seriously. But from that point forward, I made sure that I never, never took the easy way because it was more comfortable or made any sort of decisions based on I'm tired or whatever, because I, that right there was a clear example of what we stand to lose. Right. What you what what can happen at any given moment in combat? So the the severity of things just 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 really hit me that day. Up to, up to that point, we hadn't we sustained casualties, but they were wounded. Nothing really too traumatic. Um, so war was pretty much you know you would actually say like I hope we get no firefight today. You know guys would say stuff like that. You know and then after that it was like like punched in the face by reality of of like this is the end result of combat. Right. So you need to make sure. That every time you step outside the wire, your chin strap is buttoned tight and you are ready to go. Your head is on the swivel. No excuses. No bad days. You know, and as, because of the result of that, I hadn't watched the Super Bowl in probably close to eight years. Guys would say, like, how do you not know anything from the, about the NFL from like 2005 to 2012? Because like, I was deployed and guys would stay up late and watch the Super Bowl. And like, I'm going to sleep. I got, I got a patrol tomorrow. Like, I am going to make sure that I am ready to go at all times. Um, and that's what that event taught me. I think there's something very valuable to take away from that for anybody listening, because I, I like to ask the question, you know, what, what can you recall a singular moment where you really fully realize the gravity of your, your influence or your responsibility? It sounds like that would have been the answer if I had asked you a question that way. And I just, what you said was you never, at that moment you realized I'm never going to take the easy way out. You know, I'm, I'm always going to make sure that we are, you know, chin straps are buttoned. And I think that there is a natural, when you're in garrison and in training, to, to try to take the easy way out. I think that that can infect leaders at all levels. Tired, it's just training, it's just training. But when you experience the gravity of the situation like you did, I think it, it paints it in a totally different picture. And I just want to encourage you know, emerging leaders who are listening to this to rewind those last five minutes and listen to it again. because. It's probably some of the most instructive three to five minutes that I've ever heard on this podcast about the gravity of the situation that you're in charge of, the gravity of your command or influence or responsibility when it results in something like that. And when you see it, I think it's life altering. And to be able to hear somebody say that and the importance of it, I think is is gold. Again, I think probably one of the most poignant statements ever made on this podcast. Thanks for sharing that with me. Going back to your, your company gunny days, or, or I'll even say your first sergeant days. I asked you the question about when you were a company gunny, tell me about some of the great NCOs that you had. Go back to your company gunny days or your first sergeant days, your choice, and tell me about what the really successful officers look like. It could be platoon commanders or company commander, your choice. And maybe tell well, us about those people. It was like a, a gift from God. I, I got selected for first sergeant and I got sent to uh, India Company 37 and the um, company commander there was a guy by the name of Major Nick Morales. And he was, he believed in small unit discipline, right? So there's a thing, right? People uh, misconstrued discipline to mean punishment. Um, this guy had a very disciplined approach to the way he did things. His Bible was the, the pub rifle company operations. He was the most consistent man that I'd ever, that I'd ever seen. And what he did do was there's a tendency, I think for, 
and I talk about this a lot, right? Is that I think officers like so you were you were talking earlier on about like how can a lieutenant, you know, what's what should they do on the first day? Well, what they shouldn't do is compromise themselves to the Marines. So I think a lot of times when you see like an officer fail is if he be, if he tries to become too much one of the boys, right? So, you know, they don't understand that they have um, an enlisted Marine, especially a junior enlisted Marine is going to get his ass handed to him much quicker um, than an officer would, you know, in some cases for just little things like, you know, running around like with, with, a, with a crappy uniform or sunglasses on top of the head, like little things that's going to get a young Marine yoked up by the first sergeant. Right. And then, you know, the junior officers kind of flaunt, right. Because they're trying to be cool. Major Morales was so disciplined that he held his officers to a standard where it was very much, he was observing, he was coaching, he was mentoring, and he wasn't cutting any corners to, uh, you know, make these guys feel good. So it was great. He would give company orders and he would call all the lieutenants by their call sign. I never once heard him call the, the lieutenants by their last name. So it'd be like, you know, Lieutenant McNeil, that was India 2. So it would be India 2, India 2. Was, I thought it was kind of cool because he was always reinforcing what their role is, what, what their job is every day. They are the platoon commander for India 2nd Platoon, right? So when we would give company orders, he would sit there with them and make them rehearse how they were going to speak. Like, you know, like rehearse your order, not, not just the tactics behind the order, but your order's delivery. And he was just reaffirming to these guys that every time they stood in front of Marines, every time they, they interacted with Marines, every time they did anything in uniform, they need to be a representative of a competent and professional Marine officer. And he had this... These rules, he, he, this was this whole culture that he had created in that company to where all of these guys followed suit. They were the ones that, you know, a big thing um, after your first deployment is like what build a, a lieutenant gets, right? Weapons company, company. So all of these guys were either weapons, cat platoon commanders which was a big deal or company executive officers because he had taught them from the get go what right looked like and how to how to act as a junior officer in a, in, a, in, a, in a ground combat unit and the best part was while he was doing that with the officers i was doing that with the enlisted and i think um you know i was debating in my head when you're asking me what the proudest moment i was when i was a leader but you know the second most proudest moment was when um the first marine division cg came out and watched us do our morgan's well attack he pulled the marines aside and said this is the most proficient and disciplined rifle company right now in the division he's like and i've seen all of them he's like you guys are great and uh, i was like wow there, you know there's nothing better than to be told that you are the most disciplined and proficient rifle company he had this thing where we didn't do we didn't blow any he was we were just consistent Every attack was consistent. There was no attacks or no thing that we did where the evaluator would go, oh my God, this is the greatest thing we ever saw. And there was never one where they're like, you guys really suck. It was always, hey, good job, India. A couple things to work on, but overall, great job. He was the most consistent company commander I had ever seen in my life. And he taught his junior officers to never compromise yourselves in front of uh, the junior Marines because they're always watching you, right? He was... Uh, a former platoon commander in Sangin. So all these, all the stories that I'm telling you about losing lives were, was driven home to him as a platoon commander. So he was the guy that they would expend all of their energy to make sure they got it right the first time because Major Morales, Captain Morales at the time knew what was at risk, right? Your wake up call to get it together is not going to be the death of a Marine, right? This is what we stand to lose. So every single day, we're going to take training, our PT, the way we conduct ourselves, even in, even in garrison, as an opportunity to train and get ready for what could come next. And, you know, that's what I thought was like the best example for, for junior officers. That's awesome. Did he stay in? Is he still in? Oh, he's still in. Yeah, he's still in. He's still running around. He's actually on recruiting duty out here with us. 
Oh, is he? Okay, great. Yep. You know, yep. okay. So there's a there's a good segue for you. So tell me about some of the things that you learned in all of your time in the infantry community, combat, sustained combat, right? Horrible, horrible situations that you witnessed. And now you're on recruiting duty. So what were some of the things that you learned early on in your career that have become instrumental to you now in a completely different world of recruiting, right? Because for, for listeners that don't understand what that means is, you know, Sergeant Major Reynolds is leading recruiting, help me out if I get this wrong, leading recruiting stations who are out there selling the Marine Corps and getting people to join. That's a totally different leadership. How were some of the things that you learned early on in your career? How have they become instrumental to what you're doing now? Well, there's a couple. So the first thing would be humility, right? So, you know, when I was telling you about how First Sergeant Zikafu's kind of humbled himself to participate in a patrol, you know, and kind of, or when I was telling you about uh, picking up a squad coming over from a machine gun section, you know, kind of just figuring it out. Like, hey guys, help me understand this. So coming out on recruiting duty, I have no idea. My first year, I had no idea what I was even looking at. They use acronyms and it's an environment wholly unlike what you would find in the operating forces. So unless you were a previous recruiter, which I wasn't, you are stepping into this environment with a steep, steep learning curve. So to be able to turn around and say like, listen, I know nothing about what you guys are talking about and being pulled aside and trained and asking questions from the career recruiters out here, I think that does a, a good job of um, building a little bit of rapport, right? So it's, it's good to have a, a senior leader that steps in and says like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Please explain to me. And they do, and they love it. You know, they have no, they have no problem spending all the time to help me, to help me understand what they're talking about. The other part is re recruiting is extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult, right? Um, these recruiters have a tough, tough job. They get told no a lot. One of the things that has helped me and what, what combat has taught me is I established a baseline, right? So the baseline that's established in my head is the absolute worst possible scenario that I've experienced as a Marine, which is, you know, like I said to you before, was, you know, that instance where I'm identifying Marines that are killed in action, you know, at, at a surgical unit in Fallujah. So that's my baseline. So as long as things don't get worse than that, I can operate. I'm, I'm fine. Right. So I'm able to every day kind of not get demotivated and not, you know, kind of get apathetic towards my duties or, you know, you know, people, there's that thing where people say like, oh, recruiting's, you know, recruiting's not, you know, recruiting sucks and, and stuff like that. I turn around and say, hey, any day that I'm not, you know, experiencing, you know, what I experienced in Fallujah is a good day. Right. So it keeps my mindset positive so that I don't get stuck in myself or get, you know, chewed up by this like difficult environment. And then the last thing is like resiliency, right? Resiliency. I've learned so many times over my career over and over and over again that when things get bad, you have to just put your head down and continue to march, continue to push, right? So there's a ton of challenge in times on recruiting duty. There's a tons of challenge in days. There's months where, you know, it's really, really difficult. Um, there's months where it's really, really, you know, rewarding. The bottom line is this, you know, to, to be resilient, to take what the world throws at you, to take what the Marine Corps throws at you, to take what the mission throws at you and not fold and know that it's going to get better. You just got to keep moving forward. Um, it's something that I learned in combat that I continue to carry with me here and, you know, my next duty assignment, if there is one. So, you know, those are the three things I think that have like uh, helped me kind of adapt to this environment. It's also a respect too of the recruiters, what they, what they go through each and every day. It's very, very difficult. You know, I don't think people can quite understand the fact that you'll take a Marine from any single MOS and, you know, effectively he comes out as a representative of the United States Marine Corps and he's selling the United States Marine Corps and all of its benefits 
to the local population, you know, and, you know, he's got to overcome, he or she's got to overcome disinterest. What if the sting of being told no all the time, you know what I mean? And keep pushing to find that one qualified individual that's going to turn around and say, yeah, you know, I, I, I think I want to be a Marine. And there's a lot of no's that come with that final yes. Um, and these guys, these guys and girls have to deal with this every single day, clear, tangible mission. And honestly, clear, tangible results if they fail to meet that mission, right? That's the kind of the horror stories of, of recruiting duty is that, you know, like you got to write your contracts or else, you know, this, that, and whatever. So they, 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 they feel the pressure, right? So they're just like riflemen in the field, you know, it's, it's, uh, I try not to make it any worse for them. I try to support them. I try to respect what they're doing, right. And take their experiences and, and what each day must feel like for them into account every time I interact with them, just like I would in the fleet with a, with a, you know, a rifleman, you know, on a rooftop somewhere in downtown Fallujah, you know, you don't know what you, you got to take and right. take some respect for what they're going through each day. Yeah. I think I, I never served on recruiting duty, so I can't relate to it that much, but I can relate a little bit to it just because of my civilian world. Right. And, and so one of the things I think makes recruiting really hard, and I'm interested about this from a leadership perspective is that if I was a infantry company commander and I went out to the field and I did some sort of training exercise, there's really no way to truly measure that. Yeah. It was right. a good tack. It was, a, it was bad. Uh, we could have done this better. Would have really liked to have seen us improve here. You know, contact left with third squad wasn't all that great. I mean, right. You can assess things. Right. But you really can't measure, measure them. Right. You get on recruiting duty, it's measurement, 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 right? It is cold, hard, factual data. You either did or did not recruit somebody and make your mission to come in. Mm -hmm. How have you been able to take some of your past and as a senior, senior enlisted leader in recruiting for the very first time, and you said, you know, you really didn't know what you were doing. How are you counseling and mentoring those Marines who are junior to you and, and look up to you for your leadership? given such a, a difference in, in upbringing through the Marine Corps with you know, being on recruiting for, for the very first time? I, I think the first thing that I try to do is be self-aware, right? So, you know, just the other day, I had an interaction with a guy. It, it, his, his tact kind of, his tact sucked. I just, I, you know, I was like, you know, then you can leave. You know, I don't, you know, I, I don't got anything to say to you, you know, get out of my office, right? And like 30 seconds went by and I brought him back in, right? Because the first thing that you need to understand, you need to be self-aware of the fact that you can absolutely, this is, you can absolutely, if you want to go ahead and dress a Marine down, you can, you know, go ahead and, and, and fly off the handle and start yelling and screaming and, 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 and causing all sorts of chaos, but understand what happens next, right? If, if I'm trying to get the best performance out of this individual, right? Try to make them successful, right? To try to, to try to make them healthy and happy as much as I can to want to go out there and put their best foot forward. I'm not going to get that by, you know, chewing a Marine's ass and then sending them back out on the street. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's that kind of sucks. So I, I, I kicked them out of the office, but I pulled them back in and I said, you know, I want to apologize for jumping down your throat. I can understand the stress that you're under and I can understand, you know, how it must feel to be brought in my office and be talked to about the things that we're talking about. To tell you the truth, I probably would have answered the questions the same way you just did because you're passionate, you're invested in the, in the mission and you're hearing things you don't like right now. So I'm aware of that. I apologize. I see where you're coming from. I just need you to go get back out there and continue to, you know, continue to produce and continue to do the right thing. You know, and I think that that's that in and of itself is um, a major is to kind of try to sympathize. You can not sympathize, empathize with what they're doing and what they're what they're going through. And at the same time, 
you can turn around and say, you know, I hear you. It's never an excuse to not do your job. I recognize all of the conditions that you're facing right now. I recognize that this is very difficult. How can I help you be successful? You know, maybe throw some, my whole social media page was set up so that I could talk to the recruiters about how to use social media, right? It was my wife's idea to tell like the stories and stuff like that. I had initially set up an Instagram page and was taking pictures of pulley functions and stuff like that. And my wife was like, you know, if you do this, maybe you should talk about your career or whatever to entice interest in the Marine Corps, right? I wanted to give them something where I could turn around and say, hey, here's how to work a social media, right? Here's how this works. And I gave them a class on it and all these, all these things so that I can, every time I try to interact with them, I try to give them something, right? I may not give them the answer, but maybe I'm giving them a tool. Maybe I'm giving them a reason to want to push hard for the rest of the day and show up with their game face on the next day. That's it. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be them out on the street doing their job or, or trying to accomplish the mission. You brought up the social media page. I'll just take this opportunity to talk about it again. You, you have such a fantastic social media page. I, I read every single word that you write on Instagram. I open up every single comment, every single, whatever you call it, like post, like the narrative that you write. Uh, and you have just written some fantastic stuff. And if there are emerging leaders in any service, even civilian listening to this, I really encourage you to go find the Instagram page. I'll put the link to it below. It's, it's at Norseman nine underscore, uh, underscore nine, Norseman nine underscore nine. Ugh, I'll get that right. It'll be in the, it'll be in the description notes. Really go read some of that. It's, it's inspiring. And here's the thing that I love about it too. Social media five, six years ago is kind of poo-pooed by everybody. You know, people would act like they didn't even know what it was and sort of in a self-deprecating way. And, oh, I would never use that face page thing and pretend like they didn't really know what it was about. And then I've seen people recently just embrace it as a leadership tool. And I am firmly convinced that social media employed by military leaders can be such a tool for good. And that's one of the, one of the passion projects. That's one of the things I'm really passionate about with this project is every, every leader has, I think, a moral responsibility to memorialize their experiences so they can be used as a learning resource for future leaders. And so you are memorializing your experiences for others to use in real time and in a way that if you just stood in front of a formation and said whatever it is that you post on social media, X people would hear it. Some finite number of people would hear it. When you put it out there on digital, digital media, everybody can read it. So your sphere of influence as a leader has just expanded so much. It's really incredible. And I just think that I'm not a Comstrat officer. I never was. I worked in the Division of Public Affairs for a hot second before I retired. But I will tell you that I think that the, the future of the Comstrat MOS resides with the people who are captains right now, not the colonels, because they, they really get, they really understand this information as a weapon. And you, you have embraced it as a leadership tool with such phenomenal success. I really admire it. So sorry, that was a quick commercial and a, and a pat on the back. Keep it up because I, I just love your stuff. And that's why you're on the podcast today. I met you on, met you on Instagram and yeah, thank you. stuff and said, this guy's got a lot to say. So, But that's really interesting because one of the things that's got to be difficult about recruiting and leading in recruiting is that those recruiters out there, they can control their activity all day long make this many phone calls, go see this many people, do this sort of commute, right? But what they can't control is somebody actually saying yes. All right. that is completely out of their control, yet they're held accountable for it. And that is 
I, that that is a leadership function. I'm imagining. I, I want you to agree or disagree with this. That is a lot more akin to being the coach of a football team and trying to get your athletes to perform at their very best in the position that they're supposed to be playing versus being a leader in an infantry company. It's totally different. Yeah. So I was thinking about this the other day, walking into work because I'm still trying to figure out the right balance here, right? Because this is difficult, uh, extremely difficult. And for me, the thing that I've relied on all the way up until I've been on recruiting is leadership, right? So like, I think that there's, so, you know, I was thinking about this in my head the other day, right? We talk about tactical, operational, and strategic. And then I was thinking about leadership, coaching, and management, right? So you have leadership, which is like, that's what I could do, you know, all the way up until I was a sergeant major, right? You know, on recruiting, I could inspire people by getting down with them and, you know, basically saying, follow me or do it this way, or I'll do it with you, right? So that's that type of leadership where it's like, I'm going to be out front. I'll show you, right? Management is kind of like when you're up, you're, you're, you're so high up that you can, you know, you have very limited interaction with Marines and you're kind of just, you know, managing numbers on a paper and this, you know, we're short this many staff sergeants and stuff like that. Yeah, you're right. I'm at the coaching level right now. It's where I can't, I have four states. I can't get out there and get in a car with a recruiter and say, I'll show you how to go get someone to say yes. Right. So you're coaching them to try to, to try to help them through the nose, help them through the adversity, help them through the frustration, keep them positive, keep them, make them feel supported and try to take care of them so that they have enough gas in the tank or enough water in the well to want to wake up every day and put their best foot forward. So, and it's a, and it's a, um, it's a very difficult balance to walk and or to, to maintain, you know, for me, I just try to, I tell all of them, right. My goal for you is to leave this duty with a successful tour, your family intact and you're relevant and your MOS feel ready to go back and assume like the next leadership position. Right. So I will do everything humanly possible to try to make sure that this recruiting duty is not where it ends for you. Right. That you don't give up in frustration and your career doesn't end up in adversity. You know, what can I do for you? Right. Cause I, 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 you're very much a servant out here, right. Your servant leadership. I don't get to sit back with like a canteen cup full of coffee, dictating terms to the Marines out in the field. Right. It's just not that way. All independent stations, four states. I would be naive to think that I sit somewhere and say, do it this way. And that's the way it's going to be. I have to get out. I have to go spend time with these recruiters. I have to visit stations. But the flip side to it is, is I got to make my visits count. I can't spend all day in there wasting productive time for them while they're entertaining the sergeant major. So I get in, I get out and I move on to the next station. You know, with that being said is, you know, when a Marine calls and says, like, can I talk to you? I will drive to Fargo, North Dakota to go sit in an office with a guy for him to pour his heart out or speak about his frustrations or whatever. And I'll be there overnight um, because that's what it takes to keep the Marines successful. Um, that's what it takes to, to, to keep the Marines wanting to, to do their job. I mean, I, it's, I have no problem showing that type of support. Yeah, that's a great answer. And, and I, I agree. I, recruiting must be so hard. My hat's off to every single one of them that are out there in those duty stations getting it done every single day for the Marine Corps. I mean, it's an easy product to sell, but it's also not. So I think it's an easy product to sell because (laughs) I love the Marine Corps, right? But it's, it's, uh, it's tough. And you're also dealing with parents too. Jeez. You know, it's highly politicized world right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so kind of shifting gears one last time as we wrap up with a couple last questions here, but I want to ask you some questions about, you know, knowing that there's a time and a place for the issuance of a direct order, right? That must be immediately followed. A combat situation comes to mind as an example. Is it your opinion that we should be setting the conditions to encourage more collaboration between junior levels of leadership in a unit 
you know, one that sets the climate of providing useful feedback instead of that, because I said so, that you just said in a, in recruiting thing with your canteen cup and you just get to dictate orders. Is there some benefit to creating some collaboration? For sure. Rather than just, yeah, issuing orders. T- talk to me about your opinion on that. So my thing is I've always had, I've always been receptive to, except when I was a corporal, right? But as I started to get older in the Marine Corps, I've always opened the floor up to suggestions, right? So there is a time for that, okay? Marines need to understand what that time is. And for a leader, when you get the initial warning order um, or you start to catch wind that you're about to go do something, that's absolutely time to pull in, you know, your subordinates and say, hey, here's what, here's, I get a sense that we're about to go do this, or here's what we're going to get tasked to go do. Here's what I'm thinking. What, you know, squad leaders, team leaders, what do you guys think, right? The floor is open to suggestions. You entertain suggestions, right? Hey, I, oh, I like that. Yeah, that sounds good. That's a window of time that exists in and of itself. And once that window closes, i.e. the floor is now closed to suggestions, now it's time to march. I think leaders get this wrong where they operate under a very democratic, every single, you know, hey, we're going to go do this. Okay, now this happens. Okay, stop. Let's get together for the uh, Lance Corporal Democratic Convention, right? And start talking about what to do next. No, 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 no. That all starts prior to the mission, when we're in our planning phase, right? The floor is open to suggestions. I'll hear all suggestions. I'll entertain suggestions from identified leaders, right? I don't, I don't entertain suggestions from the peanut gallery, but people hold billets for a reason. Once that's done, then, okay, we slap the table and we say, here's what we're doing. Good, 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 good. We, we move on. Um, I remember saying this when I was at CQB school. Um, we sat in a room. We were planning on how we were going to do something. And as we went to go do it, one of the guys like, yeah, see, I disagree. Hey, the floor has been closed. The good idea time is now over. We are in the execution phase, right? So when you move, once you move into the execution phase, then all suggestions and all good ideas have to stop and you have to execute, right? So I think where leaders get it wrong, and I think junior Marines get it wrong, is there's a time and a place for that, right? So if you're a leader in charge in the planning phase, yes, absolutely. Hey, what are your thoughts? Hey, here's what, here's what we're, you know, we're going to go do. And for the junior Marines, have a, have a, have, don't state problems, state a problem and a solution right? Then the floor is closed. You can't sit there forever. Once the floor is closed, we execute, right? And, you know, if there's a problem, write it down, cover it in the AAR, and we'll discuss it after. But uh, as of right now, we're, we're marching. That's a great answer. I, I agree with you. I think, you know, collaboration, I, I, think, I think I've learned this more just on the civilian side than I did in the Marine side, but, you know, the collaboration is, is such a key and, and facilitating that and making room for it when appropriate is, is I think, a great tool for, for any leader to use kind of wrapping up with with one last question here and this may sound like a really strange question to ask a sergeant major so give me some latitude here do you think it's important to care if your marines like you i think i would be naive it's it's ridiculous when people say i'm not here to make friends every person wants to be liked okay that's just human nature right so if you if you legitimately say i don't care what anybody thinks about me that's wrong Nobody, that's, that's, that's not true, right? I absolutely care what people think of me, right? Because I'm giving my heart and soul to this organization, right? I would hate to give my heart and soul to this organization and think that, you know, I'm doing right by my Marines only to walk away and hear or, or come across chatter where they're like, that guy's a, an asshole, right? You're like, oh, that hurts. That stings. So I think that understanding that, yes, you do want to be like, but here's a question. What do you want to be liked for? So there's an opportunity to teach your Marines where they'll remember you forever and they'll like you forever 
and respect you forever because you got them to do the things that they didn't want to do because it was the right thing to do, right? So initially, you probably won't be the most popular guy around. They're going to have to see the fruits of their labor with their own eyes, right? Where people kind of get lost in the mix is where they try to do both. That You can't. You can't. Your primary focus in life, if it's to be liked, you're never going to get anything done. And, and everything's going to be kind of like chaotic and confusing. So the people that try to walk to try to jump back and forth, if you show up to work every day with the right uh, mindset, you show up to work every day, you know, committed to doing the right thing, training your people, making sure the missions get accomplished. And every time you make a decision, you make a decision with the mission and the Marines in mind. They may not like every decision, but they're going to see the end results of it and they'll start to respect you. Right. And with that respect, they will turn around and it may take time. It's like wine. Right. I have guys now that like, you know, probably would run the other way when they saw me uh, when we were together. Now turn around four, five, six, seven, 10, 20 years later and say, like, hey, I want to thank you for X, Y, and Z that you did. You know, I, I didn't agree with it then, but now I see why. So that in and of itself, that legacy, that thing that you're going to leave with them is is much more important, right, than uh, being liked initially or making sure every decision that you make is popular. But yeah, I, you know, guys, that's, you're going to face that dilemma. You're going to feel that stomach churning thing about like, oh, I know they're probably, you know, mother effing me in the barracks right now because I just told them X, Y, and Z, but I know it's the right thing to do. And here's the reason why, and we're going to do it this way because that's the best way for these guys or for these gals, for these Marines, right? So you need to keep that in mind. That's a great wrap-up question there. And I know uh, Daniel will be very happy that you uh, suppressed the F-bomb there. So hats off to you because I know you said that was one of your goals to make her proud about your uh, your restrained language on the podcast. So well, well sure. done. And uh, you did a great job. <laughs> so I'll just take a quick minute to kind of recap some of the things that we've been talking about for the past almost two hours. Sergeant Major Don Reynolds, I mean, started off as a self-proclaimed troublemaker in high school with a uh, UA on his very first Liberty Weekend in Lima 3-2, but you went on to talk about how the staff NCOs of Lehman 3-2 really became the crop of, of men that became how you measured yourself even today as a Sergeant Major. And you said that one of the things that the staff NCOs said to you back then was, you don't get to pick when you are, you don't get to pick when you apply your efforts. I just thought that was such a great quote. I'm going to, I'm going to remember that. You went on to talk about how you had a first sergeant in Fallujah that, would, that insisted on coming out and observing combat orders. And uh, he, he would come out and watch you. And then when, it, when you went in to say, hey, like, hey, I'm ready for my order. And he said, I don't need to see it anymore. That's when you knew you were good to go. We spent some more time talking about when you got in trouble for the UA and, and how you went from being a Marine said, you know, I, I hope they kick me out of the Marine Corps to, you know, now becoming a Sergeant Major, which, which I think is, is interesting because there has not been a single guest on this podcast that hasn't shared a story about how they got in trouble at some point in their career. And I, I just think that the, we didn't really talk about this, but there is, there is always an avenue for redemption in the Marine Corps. You may not think so, but I've got, you know, 13 episodes of people who talk about their redemptions in the Marine Corps. And you talked about how some of the NCOs were just nice to you and treated you well, even though you were, you had a nickname. I can't, I didn't write it down. Uh, UA something. UA piece of shit. UA piece of shit. Okay, right. And then you said to yourself at one point, you said, I'm, I'm sick of being in trouble, so I want to fulfill my obligation to the Marine Corps. And then that that introduced the next stage of, of your leadership life when, when you were introduced to what you phrase as the nasty corporal. And you're, you quickly discovered that that the best revenge was to basically outwork him. And you got to a point where you, you'd pass him on a hike and say, ooh, raw corporal, 
which led up to a meritorious corporal promotion in Okinawa. And you said to yourself, geez, now I'm the same rank as that corporal. And, and you went on to just basically outwork and out, and you, you used him as a gauge. You didn't say it this way, but you used, you used him as a gauge to make sure that you were always better than that. And in fact, you had done such a great job over in Okinawa that your platoon commander wrote your parents a letter, which we talked about for a while. And then we got on to talking about 9-11 and I asked you, I said, okay, great. Now you're, now you're corporal and 9-11 happens. What, what was that like when the command and you started telling the story about the now famous to me, Dave Parker, and how it was, we, we, we joked around about his appearance a little bit and uh, hand sewing his name tapes. on. I thought that was pretty funny because I can close my eyes and see that. And how he was the total opposite of all the aggressive staff and CEOs. He never yelled. He never screamed. But he had—he was the guy that had the most combat experience. And then when you went over to OIF, you ended up, you know, with a with a platoon sergeant that was a POS, we'll call it. And he degraded over time. And you told this great story about how there was mortar fire, and he he told you to go get a cigarette. So that was when you just realized, like, what in the hell's going on? And and then. Uh, it degraded all the way to when uh, Lieutenant was given a frag order. The gunny just picked up that map and threw that hand laminated map, and that's when uh, Task Force Dave Parker was was uh, created. And that Staff Sergeant that you were telling the stories about with all the combat experience just very calmly and coolly came in and took over not only Third Platoon but Weapons Platoon and fostered a great relationship between the staff NCOs and the officers in that in that Task Force. We'll call it, and that, that was a great story. It obviously imprinted on you because we went on to talk about officer relationships with staff and COs and how you, you made the point that TBS really puts out a pretty quality product. But that quality product that comes out, they're all very homogenous. Uh, lieutenants will always come out the same from Quantico is how you said it. And they, they come out, they're on fire. And, and that staff and COs, but soon sergeants need to understand that that's, that's the product that Quantico is putting out. And you made this great comment that if a, if a lieutenant really wants to know how good his platoon is, drag him out to the armory, have him draw weapons and just say contact left. And you'll basically see all the work that needs to be done in your, in your platoon. I thought that was really great. Probably a lot of truth in that jest. You made the point that billets, lieutenants and, and platoon sergeants, their billets overlap, but they're not exactly the same. And you said one of the greatest things that that a, a platoon sergeant could say to a, to a new officer coming in is, you know, what is your vision for this platoon? And don't be the no guy as the staff NCO. And then, then we turn around and we started talking about, okay, what, what would be a great way for a lieutenant to come in and take over a platoon? And basically it was to ask that staff NCO to, to help them understand and create a training plan that was obtainable and that you need to understand that when a, when a staff NCO tells you no, that there's probably a reason for it. And he told the story about, you know, if you wanted to go out and run to the gate, that you'd be right there with the lieutenant, but then you'd be able to come back and say, hey, see, I told you no for a reason. And I thought that was a really great, really great insight into to leadership and officer, staff, and CEO relationships. I then went on to ask you about, to tell me about the time when you were company gunny and you brought up the time with Fox 2-4 and the NCOs out there, what made great NCOs was that they were the ones that wanted to go out and train their guys. We talked about going out in the backyard. And uh, if you wanted to find the best NCOs, they were the ones that were never around because they were out in the backyard training. And they were out establishing OPs with their teams and their squad leaders. We then moved into where I asked you a question about, you know, tell me about a time you were proud of yourself as a leader. And you told me that when you came back in from having some broken time, that you were made a rifle squad leader and not a machine gun squad leader. And that was new for you. So you immersed yourself in books and you actually used 
drilling rehearsals as a tool for you to figure out what was going on as much as it was for an opportunity for them to train. And, uh, and you developed that tight squad because everybody had a say in what was happening and what was going on with developing the SOPs because you were yourself trying to figure out how to develop SOPs. And that was sort of that, that's what prompted the question about the collaborative environment and that you said that all of those Marines together, you guys created an SOP. That led into the story about Colonel Berger coming out on a patrol with you in Fallujah and uh, how the OPSO came out and did basically interview patrols with everybody and they picked your squad. And then you made a funny comment too, where you said like, I was just praying we didn't take contact with General Berger in the, in the patrol. And that, it's true, funny and true, I'm sure. And, and how impressive it was that he came out and showed up early and took an interest in watching your IA drills, not only, not because he wanted to see, you know, how, how a good squad operated, because he, he wanted to know what you were going to do if you did take contact. And then we, we talked about how great it was to have, you know, the Colonel come out there and, and bear the risk that that's, that the Marines that he was leading in combat had to bear. And he was uh, willing to share that risk. And that meant a lot to you. I asked you about, you know, that time with, you know, there, but for the grace of God, walk I, and we, we had a, a, a pretty solemn discussion about the experience that you had in Fallujah where there was an explosion and you were the reaction force and went out to, to help a squad that was ambushed. And, and you saw the KIAs coming out of the house and there's a Marine that needed blood that you, that you had the same type blood type as, and you, you obviously donated blood. Then you had to um, go identify the KIA Marines and how that was a, a defining moment for you, a formative moment, crystallizing moment where you looked at the other squad leader and decided he was a great squad leader. He did everything right, but you decided that that it was that moment that you saw the the price that you pay for anything in combat, and uh, you decided that that was that was the moment in your life where you decided you were never going to take the easy way out ever again, training or anything else. And that was a very formative moment for you. We then went on to talk about a time when you were a first sergeant. I said, "Can you tell me about some of the the really good officers that you met?" And you talked about Major Nick, Nick Morales from India Three Seven. You said that. Uh, he taught you the meaning of discipline is not punishment. And you told me that then Major Morales was, one, or maybe as a captain still at the time, he was one of the most consistent men I ever knew is what you said. And then we got off onto a tangent about um, how lieutenants can sometimes compromise themselves by trying to be one of the boys. And Major Morales was really great at holding the officers accountable to a strict standard. And you talked about how he actually went so far as to refer to them by their call signs. So he was imprinting upon them the seriousness of what they were doing and the role that they carried in his infantry company. And that he actually made the lieutenants rehearse what they were going to say, not only rehearse the actual actions, but rehearse what they were going to say to the Marines. Because he, he said that officers need to be, that those men, those officers, those lieutenants needed to be representative of a competent officer and that they were projecting that competence to the Marines that they were leading by the way they were speaking and issuing their briefs. And that was, that was an imprinting informative moment for you too. And you said, um, Major Morales showed you what right looked like. We then transitioned over to some stories about uh, recruiting leadership and, and how it's a different form of leadership and how you felt that you know, humility and resiliency were two of the most important leadership traits that you were bringing into coming out of an infantry command and then into a, into a recruiting command and how much you respect the recruiters that are in your four states and the job that they do in selling the Marine Corps to the, to the local people. And we had a quick conversation about measurement and how hard it is to lead when there's such strict measurement of things and the ability to measure. 
And you said that it's really forced you to become a very self-aware leader and how, you know, chewing ass doesn't necessarily work. And, you know, you, you realize the, the requirement to, to actually coach, um, and that you can't just really yell at somebody and motivate them in the recruiting world. You need to bring them back in and, and talk to them about how to do it better and touch really quickly on leadership coaching and, and managing and where leadership is, you know, you get down there and you tell them, follow me. You can't really, you can't really exercise that sort of leadership in the recruiting world. You're more coaching and managing at that point. And that's, those are different things. And, and you've learned, you've been learning how to do that as well. We talked about your social media and how that was uh, set up to help recruiters and entice interest from the poolies. And, and it's really developed into a, a great communication tool that you're leveraging. And then um, we talked real quick about collaborating, cl- you know, a collaborative climate in, a, in an organization. You said like, hey, you know, the warning order is the time for the collaboration. But at some time, the good idea machine has to stop and leaders need to surface problems, introduce solutions. And then at some point, the floor is closed and that's it. And you need to you need to execute on your mission. And so I think you know what you were saying there was that there's a time and place for everything, and there's definitely a time and place for collaboration. But at some point, there's not a time and place for collaboration anymore. And that's that's very true. And I agree with you on that. Then I asked the final question. You know, is it important for Marines to like you? I kind of saved that one for the last because you know I, I think it's an interesting question to ask a sergeant major. This really impacted me when you said that. You said it's wrong to say I don't care what people think of me. You need to ask yourself, what do you want to be liked for? And you need to figure out what those things are important to you. And, and be, what, what you're being liked for could be a lot of different things. And you need to decide what they are for yourself. But to say that I don't care what people think of me is not the right way a leader should be thinking about being liked. It should be, you know, what do you value and what do you stand for and determining what it is that you want to be liked for sounds like then Captain Major Morales had figured out what he wanted to be liked for. And it certainly doesn't sound like he was trying to be liked for just being a good guy. He was trying to be liked for setting the standard and uh, showing officers that you need to be projecting confidence and also giving the company the confidence that they needed to have. And I, I suspect that he had figured out a long time before he took command what it was that he wanted to be liked for. And that kind of wrapped it up. I just want to tell everybody that uh, the social media site, you know, if you go to Instagram, it's at Norseman, N-O-R-S-E-M-A-N underscore nine. I'll put it in the show notes below. But as we wrap up here, Sergeant Majors, just wonder if there's any last thing that we didn't hit on that you wanted to talk about. No. <clears throat> no, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Great. All right. I get a lot of feedback that people like the summary at the end. So there it is. But uh, this has been an honor. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I think the the leadership lessons and those moments in leadership that you uh, just took the last two hours explaining to everybody are 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 going to be taken very seriously by by listeners and hopefully put to good work because you've you've uh, you've had a very successful career and uh, you've led Marines in in every climb in place and uh, I, I I have the utmost respect for you and I want to just tell you how much I I really enjoy reading all of your stuff on social media and and I hope you keep that up. Thanks, Dave. Great. All right. Well, that, uh, that will conclude this episode of Moments in Leadership. Thanks a lot for listening and uh, tune in again soon for our next episode. So with that, Sergeant Major, thanks again. Thank you.